0: Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Sam Block about ancient Hermeticism, and we're going to be talking about that as a spiritual and philosophical and religious tradition from the ancient world. Uh, so, hey, Sam, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah. So, you are the author of last year. You wrote a series of posts on your website on your blog, which is titled The Digital Ambler. On Hermeticism and frequently asked questions about ancient Hermeticism, that I thought was a really great treatment and really good introduction to that topic. And so I've been meaning to talk to somebody about this for a while because it's such a complicated issue, but it was such an important philosophy that interacted with ancient Hellenistic astrology in very important and interesting ways. Um, so I was hoping we could give kind of like an overview for those that don't have any background on what ancient Hermeticism is today and some of the different philosophical and religious concepts associated with it. Um, So in terms of the starting point for that, um, what do we know about what survives of ancient Hermeticism
1: today from the Classical world? (sighs) Ah, plenty. Um, It's just how it got here kind of is a messy story into itself. Uh, So we have a whole bunch of texts that survive from the ancient world. Uh, and when I say ancient, specifically, I mean the period from about eh, first to uh, fourth century CE. First to the fourth century CE? Yeah, roughly speaking. Okay. From specifically Roman Empire period Egypt. So this is kind of still in Hellenistic Egypt, just post Ptolemaic period. So especially like, like Alexandria, Egypt? Alexandria, I personally favor more of a Thebes centering, but. Yeah, all the Nile was heavily urbanized up and down. So yeah. So this is after the, the Hellenistic
0: period after Alexander the, Alexander the Great uh, from the Greeks and Macedonians came in and conquered Egypt and Mesopotamian parts of the Mediterranean world. And then all of a sudden, uh, for the next several centuries up until the first century, uh, Egypt was under the control of Greek-speaking rulers. And that Greek or Hellenic culture started to mix together with it, with Egyptian and some um, Mesopotamian, as well as some um, Jewish cultures and different things, all in that area of like Egypt and Alexandria and other surrounding cities.
1: Exactly. Yep, that's exactly what happened.
0: So that's the that's sort of the cultural context, and out of that cultural context of this synthesis and fusion of different cultures and philosophies of religions we we eventually see the emergence of some sort of other philosophy or some sort of mixed philosophy which
1: is partially what we refer to as as hermeticism yes so like that time period religiously in that part of the mediterranean world was super weird like you have all these new religious movements cropping up left and right and this is term is heavily, heavily debated, but you see the rise of all these pagan monotheisms popping up left and right.
0: What was their context before that? Like, what were the different philosophies? There was,
1: like, what, Platonism, um, Aristotelian? Oh, sure. There are philosophies, you know, a lot of Hellenic philosophies, you know, they become Hellenistic if you want to draw a distinction. Um, and then you have also had all the various traditional religions. Um, you had the various mystery cults like Mithraism, the ISIS cult, the cult of Eleusis, and so forth. But around the turn of the millennium, new cults started popping up. I use cult in the traditional sense. You know, new religious movements start popping up, you know that either were really sectarian breakaways from existing religions or were just brand new mystic movements that kind of caught on popularly. You know, you have the Hypsisterians as a good example of this. You know, you could call them just you know, general God fearers, and that's often how they're uh, called sometimes. But you also have these notions of, you know, a local God in one part of the Mediterranean that was kind of worshipped as just the God. Um, in some cases this might be modern scholars reading in too much the little Greek phrase hotheos. Um, but other times you see this pronounced monolatry verging into monotheism. And it's a really weird thing you just see popping up left and right in that time period of the Mediterranean world, and that also comes along with the rise of the Roman Empire, you know, with new forms of government, sometimes really authoritarian forms of government, um, that radically transformed existing ways of living, economy, military, uh, commerce all across the Mediterranean, and it was to, it's the same kind of context that spurred on Christianity's growth as well. So you can kind of you consider it to be a almost not quite a sister you know path, but very similar kind of context that spurred on those kind of cults, and what we today might consider hermeticism also arose in that similar context. Right. So, and
0: that's really a good point in terms of parallel of thinking about Christianity being one of the religions or the cults that arose during the same time period around the first century CE, in that it didn't just fully. out of nowhere, but it drew on earlier established religious and and sometimes philosophical traditions, like for example, obviously like Judaism, for example, um, and and building upon much of the earlier textual and religious tradition that came before it. Um, But then there were other philosophical and religious schools that also emerged around the first century and after which mixed together the different philosophies and religions that were present in the Mediterranean in different unique ways. and so you mentioned also Mithraism as like another important one for example that didn't become as influential in the long term but was pretty popular back during that time period and then um so hermeticism is unique because what are some of the philosophical schools that it drew or religious schools that it drew on and was influenced by because that's to me that's one of the most interesting things about hermeticism is What's usually referred to as like its its eclecticism, that it was a somewhat eclectic um, religious philosophy.
1: So the way I like to consider specifically classical Hermeticism, you know, the original, you know, things we would consider today as Hermeticism, um, to be a blend of Egyptian religiosity mixed with Hellenic slash Hellenistic philosophy. And of those philosophies that fed into it, um, Most people nowadays, when they think of Hermeticism, they think, oh, Neoplatonism, oh, Um which later on, sure, absolutely. It definitely, as time went on, picked up a lot more Platonism and a lot more specifically Neoplatonic doctrine and ideas. But if you look at the older Hermetic texts themselves, it's largely a blend of Stoicism and Middle Platonism. And the earlier you go you're to the first and third books the corpus hermeticum specifically you see a lot more pronounced stoicism there
0: yeah so there's it's like from platonism it's drawing on some ideas of the soul and maybe some concepts from like plato's mystical dialogue the timaeus um, which posits this notion of the cosmos being this living animal or this living being or entity in some some way um, and other Platonic ideas that it's drawing from that because just the Platonic tradition was so dominant and influential in Western, especially Greek, philosophy for the next several centuries after it, it originated in like the 3rd or 4th century BCE. Um, from Stoicism, we get this focus on um, the importance, the notion of fate and the importance of the notion of fate and necessity and sometimes um, predetermination and things like that that shows up very strongly in the, the
1: Hermetic texts. Definitely notions of fate, but also even broad broadly speaking, just a lot of cosmological notions as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like some of their
0: doctrine of earth, air, fire, and water and the qualities associated with it were influenced by not just the Platonists but also the Stoics. So we get that. Um, I know at some at certain points there were some scholars that identified some Jewish influences on the Hermetica, and I don't know if that's like debated a little bit today still, or to the extent to which that's true. But there was a sizable Jewish community in Alexandria at the time, so that was a you know a present religious and philosophical model that would have been influencing other eclectic philosophies that were
1: around the same place places. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like I'm definitely. I don't want to say in the camp of, but I think it's fairly well understood that there's definitely some Jewish or Judaicizing influence and at least some impulses of the Hermetic text. Because I, mean, we even see this similar notion in law of the Greek Magical Papyri, where there's references to you know the God in Jerusalem or you know referencing certain you know Jewish temple priestly practices. You know, in the Greek magical papyri, which were very much like a non-Jewish set of magical texts, so definitely there was some influence there as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got
0: those sort of Greek Greek philosophical influences, but then um, there's also sometimes it's it's more overt, and sometimes more recently it's more subtle, but it's been drawn out by scholarship some Egyptian, some genuine native Egyptian influences in the corpus hermeticum or in the hermetic texts as well so that there's some elements from traditional egyptian religions that may be influencing the texts also right
1: absolutely yep and for you know a long time this was kind of thought of as like the thing and then it wasn't the thing and now it's a thing again but with recent scholarship over the past 100 years and so you know yes absolutely there's been a lot more confirmed egyptian Your presence in the Hermetic texts and what we see today as Hermetic practices.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and let's explain that the three-part thing that you just mentioned because I think that's really important thing because it's like the initial phase is these are sort of presented on the surface level as quasi-like Egyptian texts and were often regarded in the ancient world or in later times, like in the Renaissance, as Egyptian wisdom teachings because that's that's almost how they present themselves in some way. Um, but then there was a phase in scholarship where scholars started digging into the text and pointing out that they weren't actually as old as people thought they were, but instead instead of being thousands of years old, they probably dated to some time between the 1st and the 4th or 5th century CE and that they had Stoic and Platonic and and other Greek influences. And so for a while, the belief was that the Hermetica were just texts that were presenting themselves as Egyptian wisdom teachings, even though in reality that was just being used as a cover for sort of like mid-level Greek philosophizing or popular philosophy or something like that. Um, But then more recently over the past century with the discovery of new texts, there's been some revisions of that. and Now it's heading back in the other direction where some scholars are identifying some legitimate uh, Egyptian influences from philosophy and religion on these texts, so that it does seem to have
1: incorporated that to some extent. Yes. So, if you look back at a little bit of classical references to your know, Hermetica or Hermaica, you know what we would nowadays see as you know quotes from the Corpus Hermeticum or quotes from the Asclepius or whatnot. You know, you see other people across the Mediterranean the classical world. Patristic writers, for instance, Roman philosophers call this just Egyptian wisdom. You know, Yamblichus, in his reply to, you know, uh, you know, his mentor, you know, framed himself as an Egyptian priest, presenting texts we'd later find in Hermetic texts as coming from an Egyptian authority. So, and later on in the what I call the Arabic era, um, when A large number of Arabic uh, texts were focusing on alchemy and magic and astrology. They reference Hermes as an Egyptian scholar, as an Egyptian hero, with people going into Egyptian tombs to recover knowledge and lore preserved by Hermes. And you see this trend over and over and over mythically, over and over again. And you know, with Ficino translating uh, the Corpus Hermeticum and beginning the Renaissance, you know, this got a new revitalization. you know, again, repeating the idea that this stuff is ancient—you know, ancient Egyptian wisdom passed on to the modern day.
0: Right. There was like a classic story about he was translating Plato. Ficino was like a, a Greek scholar, and he had a patron who was very wealthy who was paying him to translate all of Plato's Greek texts, which are like super important foundational works in Greek philosophy, into Latin, which was the language of Europe in the day. And then they supposedly got suddenly this collection of manuscripts of philosophy attributed to Hermes, the, the Corpus Hermeticum as we call it today. And he supposedly stopped translating Plato and then and then started translating these Hermetic texts because they they thought or there was the perception at the time that the Hermetic texts were were so much older than even Plato that they deserved precedent. And I'm not sure if that story is actually. It's, it sounds like it might be a little bit um, hollywood fied, I think, or, or um, it might not have gone down exactly like that, but it at least gives you some idea of the importance at a certain time frame that these texts were held during the Renaissance. If I
1: understand correctly, that patron that Ficina had was the Medici's. and When his specific patron commissioned him to switch over from Plato to the Hermeticism, it's because his patron was getting pretty old at that point, and was kind of getting more concerned with this knowledge of salvation and you know how to save the soul, and to suddenly have these texts drop into his lap from like the teacher of Moses himself, you know, as a w- surefire way to gain salvation, of the soul, and yo know, cosmic power. That that's a pretty good impetus, like that's, as far as I'm aware, like that's actually what happened in his you know history. That's how we got the Corpus Pris- Hermeticum translated from Byzantine Greek into Latin. Yeah.
0: Okay. And so that leads us to more or less the primary text of Hermeticism today. And so here for those not watching the video version, I'm holding up the Brian Copenhaver translation of the Corpus Hermeticum with the Latin Asclepius, which is titled Hermetica. And this is sort of like the standard scholarly translation of the primary or core group of Hermetic texts that survive today that we associate with the classical um her- hermetic tradition from the ancient greco-roman world which is a series of um what is it 16 or so greek philosophical texts or quasi-philosophical or religious texts as well as one latin text that survive and that's sort of the core of the what survives essentially textually of the ancient philosophy of hermeticism right
1: yeah that's a good summary of it yeah
0: okay, how many how many actual tracts are there in the Greek
1: corpus Hermeticum? There are seventeen texts. They are numbered one through eighteen with fifteen being skipped. This isn't some taboo or mystery about you know, oh, book fifteen is missing. No, it's because Ficino made a goof when he was translating the corpus hermeticum and accidentally you know, accidentally, but included another text from a completely different body of collection of uh, hermetic texts. Which for today's scholarship, we just drop out book fifteen, and so it goes one to fourteen, and then sixteen, seventeen. And then there's book eighteen, which some people think is just an insipid little bit of prose and doesn't actually need to be in the Kermetic collection. That's for people's opinions to sort out, I guess. Okay. Um
0: yeah, so but anyway, so it is a is a collection of texts that survived that we, we think was written between about the 1st and 4th or 5th century CE, largely in Greek, but one of the major ones is in Latin. And then um, that's sort of the core of what survives of the of Hermeticism, of ancient Hermeticism. And then in modern times, there's also been some additional texts that have been rediscovered or some fragments of texts that have been identified as also coming from this sort of Hermetic uh, Mylu or or sort of set of, of philosophies or religions that's loosely associated with it, right?
1: Yes, it's like with Nag Hammadi corpus. You know, we have a couple of you know largely Gnostic bodies of uh, texts, but we do have a couple of Hermetic ones in there. Um, one of which is a section of the Perfect Sermon or the Asclepius, but one of which is completely unknown in any other collection: Discourse on the Eighth and the Ninth, or Discourse in the Ogdoad and Iniad. Like that text only survives as part of the Nag Hammadi collections and it's explicitly a Hermetic text. So like that's one that's was one of the ones that really upheaved, you know, so much modern understanding of Hermeticism. More recently as well, we also recovered what are called the Armenian definitions, which is a set of uh, 49 short doctrinal instructional statements, uh, which only survive in Armenian, although we know it was based on a Greek original.
0: Mm. Okay. So yeah, and so that's added to and expanded our body of survi- surviving Hermetic texts. Um, let's let's maybe go back and narrow in on defining what when we're looking at this body of let's just say the initial Corpus Hermeticum, the core of uh, you know 17 texts plus the Asclepius. What are the defining characteristics that even allow us to identify something as a Hermetic text? Let's say, and and one of those is that. They tend to be um, dialogue, sort of philosophical or quasi-philosophical-looking texts with a dialogue, oftentimes between like a teacher and a student, and oftentimes between a figure named Hermes Trismegistus and some of his students, where there's some sort of knowledge or wisdom that's being passed down in a sort of lineage of of a revealed knowledge from teacher to
1: student, essentially, right? That is the general format. There are tons departures from it. Like, uh, book 16. Yeah, book 16 from the Corpus Hermeticum is actually a letter penned from Asclepius, Hermes' student, to Ammon, another of Hermes' students. Um, I think book nine is also either book nine, I think it's nine. Book nine is also a letter. But from Hermes to one of his students, so it doesn't have to be a dialogue form. Most of them are dialogue. That's it was a popular teaching form at the time, Um, but not necessarily.
0: Yeah, and in that way, it's almost imitating like like Plato's dialogues, for example, where most most of and some people, I guess, if you haven't read Plato, one thing that's a misconception is sometimes most people don't or some people don't know that his philosophical texts were written as dialogues, where it's a discussion between two figures, and so the philosophical points are arrived at through this process of like going back and forth. And in the Hermetica, especially some of the cortex, texts, like the very first one, which um, Corpus Hermeticum one, which is also sometimes called the Poimandres, um, is in a dialogue format. Where and that, and that's the one basically everybody should read. I think is is the very first one, Corpus Hermeticum one, because it. Is the very first one where we have this figure of Hermes who's receiving some sort of reveal, revelation basically about the true nature of the cosmos. Um, But it's in a dialogue with this figure that he's getting this
1: revelation from. Yeah. I mean, I would say just actually book three first, but book one is definitely like the foundational, you know, revelation that kind of sets the stage for everything else to follow in Hermeticism. Absolutely. Okay. And who,
0: who is, can you clarify who the revelation So it is Hermes who's receiving this revelation and he's receiving it from who? Who's the revelation from?
1: Poemandres. Um, how to describe Poemandres? You might be familiar with the notion of the Agatha's diamond, the good demon, uh, which is a very popular uh, deity to worship and venerate both in Egypt and in Greece, although in kind of different forms. Uh, in Egypt, Agatha Stimon was associated with the god Shai, literally the the deity of fate itself, fate personified. And in that regard, Poimandres is kind of a Agatha Stimon-ish figure. Because in a few other Hermetic texts, you do see Agatha Simon being called a teacher of Hermes Trismegistus. Um, in another sense, you might consider Poimandres to be a aspect as it were of the egyptian god thoth which might seem confusing to some people because well you have hermes who is thoth to many people uh and then you have Poimandres as a thoth teaching a thoth it's a little complicated but you have another theory that Poimandres is actually a deified pharaoh because we know that you know, the egyptians had you know large pharaonic cults you know cults of the dead to certain deified kings of theirs and one theory goes that Poemandres is actually a survival of one of those divinified worshipped pharaohs who was then, you know, helping someone out specifically with a revelation of how things really are. It's a really confusing figure, and to this day there is no one scholarly consensus to who or even what Poemandres is. All we know is that in this text, in Corpus Hermeticum CH1, um, he is this divine revealing You might even consider him an angel of God to reveal the nature of the cosmos to Hermes. Yeah, it's
0: like almost set up even though it's a shadowy figure. It's like he's having some sort of revelation essentially from God or from some divine source that's showing him the true nature of the cosmos. And um, through this sort of revelation and through this sort of vision, but he's also being sort of walked through it by
1: a teacher that he's in dialogue with. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I also want to note a distinction between a hermetic dialogue and like a platonic dialogue. In a platonic dialogue, it's typically like a back and forth discussion, you know, where one person will propose something and then the other person will kind of shoot it down pro something else, which will itself get shot down or re-inspected more closely. That's like the Socratic process you see in a lot of Platonic dialogues. Hermetic dialogues are rarely as involved as that. Like it's really just like Hermes teaching, and then maybe like one or two questions by the per- other person, usually Asclepius or Tat, his Hermes' son. It's a lot more simpler, so it's not as involved. as a normal Platonic dialogue. Right.
0: Yeah, and it's funny in the f- in the first one. Sometimes there's even a sort of like reluctance sometimes of the student or an impatience that gets um, expressed at some points in the dialogue, and then the teacher like rep- reprimands him for it and says like slow down or like I'm getting there.
1: Yep, mm-hmm. Definitely there.
0: Why don't we like cuz I'm we're, we're trying to describe this, but in some ways it's like I wish we could read the whole thing, but maybe if we could read a little bit of excerpts just because I would like to um sh- give people a taste of what this is because it's so foundational to understanding what Hermetic Hermeticism in the Corpus Hermetica actually is. Do you think that would be I think it'd be great. Okay. So I've got the um Google Books translation. I just got of um, the Brian Copenhaver translation, which is usually viewed as one of the more authoritative ones recently because it's based on one of the most recent critical editions of the Greek text that was done in the 20th century. So it's usually the go-to one when people are reading this. So this is the first text, it's titled Discourse of Hermes Trismegistus Poimandres, and it says, uh, one of the things when I was rereading it last night that I thought was wild and I, and I like Copenhaver's translation is that it's very dramatic. Like, If you read this entire thing, like it's extremely dramatic, especially if you read it dramatically in your head, especially in some of the later parts. Um, so I don't know if I can get the correct tone here, but I'll, I'll see what I can do. So the opening passage, it says, Once when thought came to me of the things that are And my thinking soared high, and my bodily senses were restrained, like someone heavy with sleep from too much eating or toil of the body. An enormous being, completely unbounded in size, seemed to appear to me and call my name and say to me, What do you want to hear and see? What do you want to learn and know from your understanding? Who are you? I asked. I am Poimandris, he said, mind of sovereignty. I know what you want and I am with you everywhere. I said, I wish to learn about the things that are, to understand their nature and to know God. How much I want to hear, I said. Then he said to me, keep in mind all that you wish to learn, and I will teach you. Saying this, he changed his appearance, and in an instant everything was immediately opened to me. I saw an endless vision in which everything became light, clear, and joyful, and in seeing the vision I came to love it. After a little while, darkness arose separately and descended, fearful and gloomy, coiling, coiling sinuously so that it looked to me like a snake. Then the darkness changed into something of a watery nature, indescribably agitated and smoking like a fire. It produced an unspeakable wailing roar, then an inarticulate cry like the voice of fire came forth from it, but from the light— a holy word mounted upon the watery nature, and untempered fire leapt up from the watery nature to the height above. The fire was nimble and piercing. Uh, it keeps going on, but it's basically describing, like a cosmogony or
1: like a, the creation of the cosmos, basically, right? Yep. And like this is like this is a revelation. Like think of like the Book of Revelation. Like Hermes is tripping right now. You know he he described you. Know, He was in a period of sensual deprivation almost, you know, in such a state of meditation where his senses, his physical senses, his bodily awareness was just gone. And in that state of pure consciousness, he gets approached by this divine figure, overwhelming and just is shown in a way that can only make sense in this kind of revelation and what we might consider to be metaphorical, but in this kind of like, Altered state of reality and understanding. This is like, this is his vision.
0: Right. Okay. So let me finish it. So he says, But from the light, a holy word mounted up upon the watery nature, and untempered fire leapt up from the watery nature to the height above. The fire was nimble and piercing and active as well. And because the air was light, it followed after spirit and rose up to the fire away from earth and water, so that it seemed to suspend from the fire. Earth and water stayed behind, mixed with one another, so that earth could not be distinguished from water, but they were stirred to hear the spiritual word that moved upon them. Poimandres said to me, Have you understood what this vision means? I shall come to know, said I. I am the light you saw, mind, your God, he said, who existed before the watery nature that appeared out of darkness. The light-giving word who comes from mind is the Son of God. Go on, I said this is what you must know. That in which sees and hears is the word of the Lord, but your mind is God the Father. They are not divided from one another, for their union is life. Thank you, I said. Understand the light then and recognize it. After he said this, he looked me in the face for such a long time that I trembled in his appearance, or at his appearance. But when he raised his head, I saw in my mind the light of powers beyond number, and a boundless cosmos that had come to be." Um, And then he says, "...the fire encompassed by great power and subdued kept its place fixed. In the vision I had, because of the discourse of Poimandres." these were my thoughts. Since I was terrified out of my wits, he spoke to me again. In your mind you have seen the archetypal form, the pre-principle that exists before a beginning without end." This is what Poimandri said to me. So he keeps going on, and it creates this whole sort of creation of the cosmos story and eventually gets to um, the creation of our world, essentially, basically in the whole cos- cosmic framework. Mm-hmm. So there's one other part of this I want to skip to um, that's really important, which is. It starts talking about um, the planets, and it starts talking about the setup and, and the creation of our cosmos and the way that it's constructed, which created this important um, conceptualization of the role of the planets in the ancient world, I think, right?
1: Well, it earlier on, uh, it does talk about the creation of the cosmos and the creation of the earth within it. It kind of describes the way down, as it were and at the end of Book 1, it describes the way back up.
0: Okay, so one of the things I guess it sets up and we can just describe it here is it sets up the Earth and and part of what it's talking about is the Earth and the creation of the material universe. But then it it sets up this um, situation with the cosmos where you have these spheres that radiate out from the Earth, which turn out to be the planetary spheres. And when a person is Born, their soul, which comes from outside of the cosmos, outside of the material plane, descends through the planetary spheres and it starts picking up qualities from each of the planets and then eventually um, is born uh, into the world, into the material world where it's subject to fate.
1: So that's generally the idea. You know, there's the creation of the cosmos. You know, then there's creation of the heavens and the creation of the earth, nature as it were. And then there's humanity. And we are made ontologically as the same level as the Logos itself, the Word of God. And more than that, not only are we described as a child of God in much the same way that the Logos is, but we're also described as in the likeness of God, which is a really important thing. Because like even the Logos doesn't get that kind of distinction right so as we're made you know because all things love god this everything has a cosmic sympathy with the divine and we are an image of the divine therefore everything has a cosmic sympathy with us as well because we are human and humans are made in the image of the divine so because of that all things want a little part of us and we want a little part of everything so we kind of asked, you know, our parent, you know, God, to, you, hey, could I play around this neighborhood? And God said, absolutely, go on, knock yourself out. And so we did. We wandered off the neighborhood. We picked up a little bit of everything, a couple of houses, and then we just found this really cool house, you know, owned by nature, the earth, and nature just loved us. You know, she made a whole body for us, and while well, we looked at our, the body made for us, which is a reflection of us. And because we saw a reflection of us, we saw an image of ourselves, and we're in the image of the divine. So we naturally fell in love with ourselves, kind of like a big narcissist moment. And then we just inhabited the body, like it's a fall of mankind, as it were. But it's not talked of necessarily in negative terms. You know, this is the meeting of the soul with the body. So there is a there is a m- more negative version of that, which is where the
0: Gnostic schools tended to go, which was a much more is the term like dualistic like um in terms of being very anti-body and very pro spirit to the extent that they said that some of the schools said that the material universe was created by sort of like a malevolent creator subservient creator deity who in his ignorance of the true god like created this false cosmos and then took sparks of the divine and trapped humanity in it essentially which is like Sort of the Gnostic part of the more Gnostic negative creation story, which gives a much more overtly negative spin to the physical incarnation in the the bodily world of the senses. And while you do occasionally get some of that occasionally in certain tracts of the Corpus Hermetica where there's some more negative treatment of the body coming in, for the most part, it's not quite that extreme in most of the Hermetic texts and philosophy, it seems like, right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Like, There's definitely a pessimistic dualist tendency in some texts. There's also a optimistic monistic, you know, tendency in other texts. And it kind of wavers between which approach you want to take from text to text. But there is definitely a sympathy, a harmony as it were, between Gnosticism and Hermeticism. Like again, we see Hermetic texts in the Gnostic collection of the Nagamadi collection. Um, and they arose like they're siblings. Like bluntly put, Hermeticism and Gnosticism are sisters. They arose in like the same culture around the same time period, around the same you know socioeconomic or religious backdrop, kind of replying to the same impulses of salvation of the soul. They just kind of grew up in a way of it. But they're definitely similar in a lot of ways.
0: And they're also taking into account similar cosmological frameworks of like we are on Earth, we're the Earth is encircled by these planetary spheres, and these planetary spheres have qualities and meanings and actually have some sort of impact on us or some sort of control or connection with our fate. Yes, um, Because by this point, the um, starting with Plato at least, Plato in uh, in the Timaeus or maybe it was in the Myth of Ur in the Republic associated the sphere of the planets with he marmene, which is the Greek term for fate, And so this began a long-running tendency that picked up especially during the Hellenistic period to associate the planets with the concept of fate and eventually culminated in um, the rise of Hellenistic astrology, which was the belief that you could use astrology and especially use the study of the birth chart or natal astrology to study your fate and to know what your fate actually is.
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we actually see an identification in some Hermetic texts that really make explicit the connection between the planets and fate. So it's definitely a thing.
0: Yeah, that's actually it turns out that was literally the next passage that I was about to read when I stopped and I should have kept reading. So let me read that passage in, in from Corpus Hermeticum 1 as part of this sort of creation myth that it says up. So where I left off was where it said in your mind you have seen the archetypal form, the pre-principle that exists before a beginning without end. This is what Pymander said to me the elements of nature, from whence have they arisen, I asked? And he answered, from the counsel of God which, having taken in the Word and having seen the beautiful cosmos, imitated it, having become a cosmos through its own elements and its progeny of souls, the mind who is God, being androgyne and existing as life and light, by speaking, gave birth to a second mind, a craftsman who, as God of fire and spirit, crafted seven governors, they encompass the sensible world in circles, and their government is called fate so that's that's it, and that's really crucial right here in the corpus hermeticum in the very first you know one of the most important and what's usually considered one of the oldest and most foundational. Doc, um, texts for this this entire set of different texts in this broad sort of philosophy, it sets up this creation story where part of the creation story is that the planets are encircling the earth and that they are the governors of, of fate. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, one of the points, though, that ends up being important is um, what the revelation and part of the revelation that occurs in the first. Um, text of the Corpus Hermeticum in the Poemandries is, is this notion that while we're alive, that we're in a physical body, and the physical body is subject to or is under the control of fate and under the control or influence to some extent of the planets, which are the governors of fate. However, part of the revelation, it seems like in the very first doc, uh, text of the Corpus Hermeticum, is that we also have some sort of um, soul which is not from the material plane but actually descended from some other plane outside of the planetary spheres and that the soul itself is not subject to fate in the same way at least when it's not down here
1: encompassed by the physical body is that more or less correct yes so the idea is that you know our souls you know who we what and who we really are you know was made directly by god you know, God made the demiurge, the craftsman who made the rest of the cosmos, but we are not a product of our cosmos. Our bodies are a product of the cosmos, and therefore our bodies are subject to the laws and energies of the cosmos inherently, innately. Our bodies cannot escape that kind of fate. Our souls, however, are technically immune to fate because it comes from a place beyond fate. The difficulty, the rub for us, lies in the fact that our souls inhabit these bodies. You know, you go outside, you're wearing a shirt. People will make fun of you or they'll comment on your shirt, and you can't but receive those comments unless you just take off the shirt entirely. But you can't do that because you're in public. In much the same way, our souls are wearing these bodies, and these bodies are what's subject to fate. Our souls aren't subject to fate but because of how closely intermingled our souls are with our bodies, our souls can still be impacted by fate. You know, I'm sure you might have heard the saying that, you know, astrology, you know, does not how's where I go? It does not compel. It only impels. You know, you get a certain transit, it's not gonna tell you you will act like this. It gives you an impulse to act in a certain way. In much the same way, we describe that of the soul. Fate compels the body impels the soul. It does not compel the soul in the same way it compels the body.
0: Right. So there's there's a notion that once our soul becomes incarnated in a body that um, we're subject to some of the things that come with the body, which is not just health and sickness, which is one of the physical things then that is said to be subject to the planets, but also to um, desires and to other um, motivations that arise primarily from the body rather than the soul, and that that can cause us then to be led into certain things or to do certain things that the soul might not do otherwise if it was not encompassed by the body. But because it becomes so intertwined with the body, the ability of the the planets and of fate to act on the body becomes something that can kind of drag the soul along as well.
1: Yes. So in other Hermetic texts, that have a more strongly platonic bent to them not part of the corpus medicum but other you know classical hermetic texts you see this platonic notion of thumos and epithumia or the drive and desire and it kind of uses the same platonic metaphor of like the soul as a charioteer you know trying to drive these two horses that are wild and need to be broken and if the charioteer isn't good at what they're doing the horses will just take that charioteer wherever they want whether it's into a ditch or into a wall you know, it could spell doom for the charioteer. But if the charioteer knows what they're doing and knows how to steer and guide those horses, then they can go wherever they want. You have this notion of the appetites, the physical needs of the body, and the ego, the emotional impulses that arise from us being incarnate. You know, Those are the energies of the body, the so-called lower soul, as it were, the soul generated by the cosmos, the soul of the body. And our higher soul, the thing that's actually made by God, the thing that's actually us, we have to constantly fight with that. You know, we have to tame it. We have to develop ourselves. If we just let the body have our way, well, then I'll be eating pizza 24 hours a day. I'll get sick. I'll get high blood pressure and cholesterol, and that'll spin my early doom. But if I have my soul, you know, kind of work with my body and understand what those impulses are, what those, you know. What it really wants and why it wants it, then it's like, I know you want pizza, but here have a, you know some steamed chicken instead? It's a little bit healthier. You know that's where the soul works with the same impulses, but in a more constructive way. Right. So this is what gave rise
0: to what became common, especially in the later medieval tradition, and it's one of the ways that astrology was able to survive even after the rise of Christianity. Through this distinction between like natural astrology, where they started saying that astrology um and the planets have influence over the body, but they don't control the soul or necessarily maybe even the mind to a certain extent. Um but instead, it's it's something that is it relates to the body as a almost natural phenomenon, yes, yeah. we we see that pretty much explicitly in hermetic text, yes, yeah. although it's a little. Complicated in the Hermetic text because it also says that your temperament is part of what the planets have control over, which does start getting into things that have to do with like your your actions and your choices and motivations and things like that. I think this is a good point to read the last passage when um, the ascent when Hermes asks Poimandres to describe the ascent of the soul, um, because then we get to the other astrological section. Alright, so let me read that. It says so Hermes then he's he's talking to his teacher towards the later part of the dialogue and he says you've taught me all these things well, O oh Mind, just as I wanted. But tell me again about the way up. Tell me about how it happens. To this Poimandres said, first in releasing the material body, you give the body itself over to alteration and the form that you used that you used to have vanishes to the daimon that you give over your temperament now inactive. So that's a really important point. So it says that the daimon or the personal spirit in some sense or spirit guide is somehow in charge of your temperament and that ties into their astrological doctrine. So it says to that daimon you give over to your temperament, it becomes inactive after you die materially. So then it goes on and it says the body the body's senses rise up and flow back to their particular sources becoming separate parts and mingling again with the energies and feeling and longing go on towards a rational nature thence the human being rushes up through the cosmic framework at the first zone surrendering surrendering the energy of increase and decrease so The first zone is the sphere of the Moon, so it's, it's attributing to the Moon um, notions of increase and decrease because of the waxing and waning of the Moon. At the second sphere, you give up evil machina- machinations, a device now inactive. So the, the sphere of Mercury in this Hermetic text, it's associating with the with Mercury and the trickster energy of Mercury and calling it evil machinations. At the third zone, the illusion of longing, now inactive. So this is the sphere of Venus and the sphere of longing or desire is given back to Venus. At the fourth sphere, the ruler's arrogance, now freed of excess. So arrogance is a property of the Sun once we pass through the Sun sphere. At the fifth sphere, unholy presumption and daring recklessness. This is the sphere of Mars. At the sixth sphere, evil impulses that come from wealth now inactive. That's Jupiter's sphere. And at the seventh zone, the deceit that lies in ambush. So it associates deceit with Saturn's sphere. And then stripped of the effects of the cosmic framework, the human enters the region of the Ogdad, which is the eighth sphere basically, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. He has his own proper power And along with the blessed, he hymns the Father. Those present there rejoice together in his presence, and having become like his companions, he also hears certain powers that exist beyond the eighth region, and the hymn God with sweet voice. They rise up to the Father in order to surrender themselves to the powers, and having become powers, they enter into God. This is the final good for those who have received knowledge to be made God. Why do you still delay? Having learned all of this, should you not become guide to the worthy so that through you the human race might be saved by God? So this this is the final, essentially the final revelation of the hermetic sort of core hermetic revelation as he's been revealed, Hermes has been revealed not just the a vision of the creation of the cosmos, but also um, a vision of the soul as being this, um this entity that that comes from outside of the material cosmos that descended here and picked up all these qualities through the planetary spheres but that once you die you have the potential of ascending back through the planetary spheres giving back those qualities or shedding them almost like clothes as you as you were saying earlier using the shirt analogy and then returning back to the source in some sense
1: exactly yes like i want to point out that even though like the energy of the second zone, evil machination. Like, even though these might be described somewhat negatively, I want to make the point that these are not evil powers. Like, that's a big distinction between Hermeticism and Gnosticism. This cosmos is not evil. It's not some wicked, you know, scheming trap of an evil demiurge that wants to, you know, torture us where cruelty is the point. It's not describing things like that. Like, these are energies that are just. Part and parcel of what incarnation needs of us, of what we need in order to be incarnate. You know, we can't but have these energies around us. You know, deceit is not a good thing. You know, lying, blasphemy. You know, these things are not great. You know, there's not, you know, it's things that aren't true. But to an extent, you can't survive down here without engaging that to some degree same with the illusion of longing lust you know a sense of you know self-centered egoism you know arrogance to an extent you have to have these things because it's what gives us our you know drive for survival you know a drive to you know make ourselves succeed in this world like they're not bad it's just they're things that belong to this cosmos and if we want to get away from this cosmos then we have to give those things up
0: right that makes sense um, and here's an old diagram that I made a while ago, which just shows sort of the the vision of the cosmos that we're talking about here, with the Earth at the center, and then the the seven planetary spheres encircling the Earth, and encircling us with their sort of power of fate. And then outside of that, you have the sphere of the fixed stars, um, which I think is the eighth sphere. And then there are, are other potentially ninth or tenth spheres in some Hermetic cosmologies, right?
1: Yeah. The Book One, the Corpus Medicum, kind of leaves those undefined. Um, And in certain other Hermetic texts, it kind of expands on what those spheres are, not necessarily all in the same way. But yes, you you have the Earth, the center, you have the seven planets above that, and then you have the sphere of the fixed stars beyond that. And that's where you truly reclaim your divinity, Mm. or at least begin to truly do so. Okay so um
0: so at this point um hermes has been given this gift of um gnosis or of knowledge or or wisdom that has been divinely revealed to him and that knowledge of or the, and then he's sort of told it's now your job to go out and and share this and pass this knowledge or this wisdom along to others who deserve it in order to sort of like help Enlighten humanity to some extent,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yep, He's given, you know, his commission, as it were, by Poem Andres to go out and start saving people. Okay, and so this is really important
0: because then it sets up um, this this core doctrine of hermeticism, which is gnosis or knowledge as revealed wisdom that is passed down from teacher to student, and Gnosis is kind of an important word, so I'm not sure if we should dwell on that more in terms of knowledge or just leave it at that as, as this revealed wisdom.
1: So it does literally mean knowledge, but knowledge is not a great translation for it. Because there's different in you know, we all know how there's like a hundred different words of, you know, in Greek for the word love in English. You know, there's brotherly love, there's erotic love, there is, you know, agape, you know, that kind of divine love. I mean, that might be worth just
0: stating more broad or dwelling on that when we're reading this translation, for example, some of these words that he, the translator has to make a choice and just translate it as, as a single English word have like 10 different meanings and are kind of actually packed with other meanings that you don't fully get unless you're reading the Greek text.
1: Yeah, it's a problem. You can't do translation without interpretation.
0: Yeah, so so gnosis or knowledge when you see that show up in a hermetic text sometimes that's packed with
1: a lot of meanings that you really have to dwell on. Yeah. So like there's episteme which is more like things you accept on faith, you know, just things you just learn from a teacher. There's logos, you know, things you come up discursively, you know, you reason your way through them. And then there's gnosis which is more like Not necessarily revealed, but it's more like experiential knowledge of the truth. Like It's not something you can just learn from a teacher. It's not something you can just kind of deduce your way to. It's something you actually undergo, like the qualia of truth. Like I could talk to a blind person about what the color red is like, but they'll never know to experience color red. In the same way, this gnosis that Hermes got from Poimandres, he didn't just see these things he describes them in Book One the Corpus Medicum, as you know, a metaphor. But really, it's better to say that he experienced the creation of the cosmos. He experienced this knowledge that was revealed to him by Poimandres, Andres, and that's what makes it gnosis.
0: Mm, okay. That's really important, and that's a core doctrine then of Hermeticism and that becomes somewhat characteristic of other Hermetic texts that allows us to identify other Hermetic texts is this focus on this knowledge or this revealed wisdom, um, knowing this deep sense of knowing that's been um, handed down from teacher to student. And then Hermes then and the rest of the dialogue is then set up to be this teacher who's empowered to go out and, and spread this wisdom and, and pass down this knowledge of this revelation that he's had. Um, let me read, because this is the part where it gets really dramatic at this point when I was rereading it recently, which is kind of interesting. But <clears throat> so it says um, As he was saying this to me, Poimandres joined with the powers. Um, then he sent me forth, empowered and instructed on the nature of the universe and on the supreme vision. After I had given thanks to the Father of all and praised him. And I began proclaiming to mankind the beauty of reverence and knowledge. There's that word again, knowledge. And it says, "People, earthborn men, you who have surrounded yourselves to drunkenness, who have surrendered yourselves to drunkenness and sleep and ignorance of God, make yourselves sober and end your drunken sickness. For you are bewitched in unreasoning sleep." When they heard, they gathered round with one accord, and I said. Why have you surrendered yourselves to death, earthborn men, since you have the right to share in immortality? You who have journeyed with error, who have partnered with ignorance, think again. Escape the shadowy light, leave corruption behind, and take a share in immortality. Some of them who had surrendered themselves to the way of death resumed their mocking and withdrew, while those who had desired to be taught cast themselves at my feet." Having made them rise, I became became guide to my race, teaching them the words, how to be saved and in what manner. And I sowed the words of wisdom among them, and they were nourished from the ambrosial water. When evening came and the sun's light began to disappear entirely, I commanded them to give thanks to God, and when each completed the thanksgiving, he turned to his own bed. Within myself I recorded the kindness of poimandres, and I was deeply happy because I was filled with what I wished. For the sleep of my body became sobriety of soul. The closing of my eyes became true vision. My silence became pregnant with good. And the birthing of the word became a progeny of goods. This happened to me because I was receptive of mind, of poimandries, that is, the word of sovereignty. I have arrived inspired with the divine breath of truth. Therefore, I give praise to God the Father from my soul and with all my might." And then it has this set of, sort of set of short lines. It says, Holy is God the Father of all. Holy is God whose counsel is done by his own powers. Holy is God who wishes to be known and is known by his own people. Holy are you, who by the word have constituted all things that are, Holy are you from whom all nature was born as image. Holy are you of whom nature has not made a like figure. Holy are you who are stronger than every power. Holy are you who surpass every excellence. Holy are you mightier than praises. You whom we address in silence, the unspeakable, the unsayable, accept pure speech offerings from a heart and soul that reach up to you grant my request not to fail in the knowledge that benefits our essence. Give me power, and with this gift I shall enlighten those who are in ignorance, brothers of my race, but your sons. Thus I believe and I bear witness. I advance to life and light. Blessed are you, Father. He who is your man wishes to join you in the work of sanctification, since you have provided him all authority." So that was really extensive and a long thing to read, I, I realize, and especially part of it's out of context. But it's kind of important because that sets up everything else in Hermeticism, which is we have seen Hermes receive this divine revelation and then his his goal then is to go out and to teach it and to pass it forward and to share it with the world and to help people to understand their divine origins and that they
1: are not of this world in some sense. Yes, like this really points out that the central impulse of Hermeticism is salvation of the soul. Like a lot of people might, you know, who just, who might just be tuning in, you know, just to, you know, see that prayer that Hermes recited, you know, like it sounds really Christian. It sounds really like Abrahamic. And it kind of is, you know, it's been called a Trisagion in many ways, like the Trisagion of Isaiah, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Um, it's very much like the whole Hermeticism. And as book one sets up, Is about teaching a way to save the soul through the gnosis of God as the creator of all things and of ourselves as a creature in creation. And everything else in Hermeticism really builds on that one impulse. You know, there's, of course, the Delphic Maximism, know thyself. Well, why is that so important? Because if you know yourself, you know everything around you. If you know everything around you, you know where it comes from. You know where you come from. You know how everything is tied together. And if you know where you come from, you also know where you need to go. Right, that makes sense.
0: Um, So, And then subsequent uh, texts in the Corpus Hermeticum are often then dialogues between Hermes and subsequent students like Aslepius or um, other figures who then become teachers like Aslepius becomes a teacher himself and then passes on the knowledge to other students. And so this dialogue format and this teacher-student Passing revealed knowledge down uh, about the na- true nature of the cosmos becomes a recurring theme throughout most hermetic texts.
1: Yeah, and it's not just revealed knowledge itself. And this would be more episteme, as opposed to gnosis. You know, it's more like handing the keys to gnosis over. You know, it's the goal of epistemy, the purpose of episteme. You know, that kind of taught knowledge, as opposed to experienced knowledge, is to build a foundation. You know, give a framework, you know, set expectations as it were. And within that framework and set of expectations, then the student can then do the work of, you know, entering into altered states of, you know, awareness, you know, ritual work, theurgy, and so forth, to then experience that knowledge to get the gnosis. So, like at multiple points about the Hermetic text, like there's this repeated notion that like I can't say these things, like I can't speak what truth is, because no matter what I say, it's not going to be true. You have to experience the truth for yourself. And all Hermes does is just show the way to do that. Right. And
0: um, that makes me think of this passage I wrote down when I was taking notes in preparation for this from uh, Nicola Dunsey Lewis in her book, Introduction to Gnosticism. At one point, talking about what you were referring to earlier, that this is kind of about salvation, and it's a salvific sort of religious set of texts, um, it has this section titled knowledge as a Path to salvation. And, it says, and she says, the very fact that the Hermetica consistently feature a teacher instructing a student is witness to the fact that those who read the Hermetica were convinced of the importance of knowledge passed down through a human teacher. The acquisition of this knowledge in its fullest form and the development of this knowledge as a form of salvation, the most important thing to bring salvation is acquiring knowledge, especially concerning how the cosmos works and how it mirrors God's goodness. So, therein I think lies part of the importance of astrology and why astrology is one of the things that actually recurs as a frequent, somewhat frequent motif in Hermeticism. Um, to a certain extent in the philosophical Hermetica, but then also in other Hermetic texts that we associate with what scholars sometimes call the technical Hermetica, which are practical texts on astrology, alchemy, and um, other sort of topics like that sort of sort of esoteric or occult knowledge, are more practical texts that talk about also understanding the nature of the cosmos um and having some deeper
1: understanding of how the world works yes so in a couple of the stobine fragments you know there's this notion of how things come to be in a very high level framework like there's this notion of providence the mind and will of god you know what god wants to happen what serves providence is necessity kind of ensuring that what god wants to happen is consistent you know regular you know i throw something in the air it has to fall back down in order to be consistent I can't just throw something up there and it stays there. Serving necessity is fate. You know, now we know what God wants, and now we know what needs to happen to accommodate that. Fate sets up the design for things to happen in such a way that fulfills providence in a way consistent with necessity. And then what serves fate is the planets themselves. In their many motions and revolutions, how they coordinate their energies, impel and coordinate certain things down here. So by looking up at the stars, if you look hard enough and you can kind of correlate how things happen down here with what happens up there, you can essentially peer into the mind of God. Like that's kind like it's a big claim. Like that's fundamentally what you're doing with astrology. Like, yes, you're seeing how things happen down here, what will happen down here. But if you take a bigger view of that, you could see why things happen down here and why God wants certain things to happen here. And that's kind of why astrology is so important for Hermeticism, because you get to learn the design of God and therefore our design, what makes us tick, what our role is in the cosmos, what role we need to play. And then by playing along with that role, how we get to play that role to the best of our ability to fulfill what we need to do so we can finish our role and just leave the stage. Right. So
0: it's like letting you in looking at or contemplating astrology, it's allowing you to contemplate the inner workings of the cosmos and because of that chain of um being on those different levels of like, you know, us, planets, fate, necessity, all the way up to providence, and then eventually back to God or back to the source, by being able to contemplate and see the inner workings of fate. Um, understand better the sort of overall plan or providence that's inherent in the cosmos in some way, Um, but also um, in understanding your own personal role in that and your own personal part in that gives you some greater divine insight or some way to
1: personalize the sort of broad workings of the cosmos. Yeah, basically. I mean, this kind of like the whole Stoic notions come into play. You know, what is fate, and then what do you need to do in order to go along with your fate? You know, that one kind of prayer by I think it's Cleanthes. I think it's Cleanthes. Not entirely sure, or Chrysippus, one of the big uh, Stoic philosopher, uh, from whom we have very little surviving. But there's this kind of one prayer I kind of recite to myself during hard times. Lead me, O Zeus, and holy destiny, to wherever my post and life's battle be. Willing I follow, were it not my will, wicked and wretched would I follow still. You know, you can't but go along with your fate. One way or the other, your fate's gonna happen. It's just on you to determine how you react to it. And so once you learn your role, then it's on you to, you know, be responsible for yourself, to be responsible for your role in the cosmos and live it up to the best you possibly can.
0: Right. Yeah, um, because ultimately it has a providential design, which is good. And going back to the Stoics, you know, I guess the, at the core of that is the notion that each event has a prior cause. and whatever happens, whatever outcome that happens when something happens, there was something before it that led to that. And that if you follow that chain of causation all the way back, you know, it goes back to the very beginning of the entire cosmos. Um, so there's this notion that, there's a, a sequence of events that is sort of pre-ordered or pre-ordained in some sense, but because they believed that the cosmos was um, sort of divine in some sense, that this sequence of events was ultimately good, and that whatever happens in the cosmos, even if we subjectively don't prefer it or we don't enjoy the experience subjectively, in some instances, in terms of the events that occur in our individual lives that somehow that plays into some broader sequence of events or some broader plan that has a purpose and has a important that that's going somewhere um, that's good ultimately and therefore even if we don't like it or prefer it subjectively we should ultimately find a way to become okay with
1: it um, because it's for the greater good in some sense absolutely and I want to you know Emphasize that you know, hermeticism is not stoicism. Like there's a lot in hermeticism that Stoics would outright laugh at. But when you look at records of you know contemporary Egyptian priests like Kyremon or Manetho, you know from historical records, you see these notions that they were described as Stoics. Now it may well be that they may have actually studied and professed stoicism as a Hellenistic philosophy while being Egyptian, while being Egyptian priests. Some scholars now think that that's not so much an indication of how they studied Hellenic philosophy, but might be more of a reflection of the overall Egyptian view towards these things, and that they just happen to align with what we would consider to be Stoicism. So, like Hermeticism also has a lot of Platonism, you know, Platonism in it as well. And in some regards, I kind of like. Seeing hermeticism as like stoicism plus one, like yeah, it's everything the Stoics said, but you put God one level further out. Mm, okay, you know if you turn back to the beginning of you know book one, the Corpus Hermeticum, you know God made the logos, the Word of God, which then essentially made the cosmos. So the cosmos is logos in many ways, and that's right in line with stoicism. But then hermeticism still goes to say that God lies beyond the cosmos, and that's more. Platonism at that point.
0: Yeah, I think in the in Corpus Hermeticum one, it says that God creates like a craftsman or a demiurge figure who is then the one that creates the cosmos, and that's that's why you're saying that it's the cosmos is is one removed from 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 God essentially in a hermetic approach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whereas for the Stoics, like the cosmos is God, and the entire cosmos is this living entity that has a body which is the physical world we can see and then a soul that's infused throughout it logos yeah okay yeah um so but that's important because they are taking over from perhaps the Stoics possibly some notion of fate uh to some extent and fate and this this focus on fate and predetermination to a certain extent and that being tied into the planets and being tied into astrology but there's also an, an inherent um focus in Hermeticism that's really important on self-knowledge and of knowing yourself and knowing your place in the cosmos and knowing the inner workings of the cosmos. And I think that's one thing that really sets it up as being very amenable to to astrology then as one of the means of not just knowing the the inner workings of the cosmos, but also in terms of developing self-knowledge and the ability to um, have self-knowledge in order to to sort of comport yourself in a way that's appropriate Uh, To the Hermetic ideal,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, so this is also kind of where we kind of you depart from the philosophical Hermetica and get to the technical Hermetica. Why don't we explain that distinction real quick? So the Corpus Hermeticum is what we consider to belong to the quote philosophical Hermetica. You know, the Hermetic texts that talk about you know philosophy, religion, spirituality. You know. Not in the modern sense, but in the classical, literal sense, theosophy, you know, wisdom of the divine. And it's what, you know, Marsilio Ficino focused on with the Corpus Hermeticum, you know, the Latinus Sclepius was largely about this kind of philosophical stuff, the Stobine fragments, you know, the excerpts of Hermetic texts preserved by John of Stobe in his anthology, you know, largely all what we consider philosophical or theoretical. And this is often contrasted with the technical. Or practical hermetica, which is you know the spooky stuff that you know modern academia doesn't like touching. You know the Greek magical papyri, alchemy, astrological texts. You know texts that talk about how to ensoul statues or how to raise the dead. You know all the stuff about you know making enchanted rings for the Deccans, You know how to cure people and their various physical maladies by you know making certain offerings to certain gods and certain astrological alignments. You know, making certain sacrifices to certain plants, all that is considered technical Hermetica. Um and that's where it gets interesting and conflicting at times. Right. But but it's
0: an important point that just in addition to this large collection of like um more, let's say, philosophical or religious texts that feature Hermes having a dialogue and passing knowledge down to various students of a philosophical or religious nature. There's also in the ancient world contemporaneous with that Greek texts that were written that featured Hermes um, passing practical knowledge of astrology down to different students, and then different students of Hermes like Asclepius passing knowledge down to other subsequent students like Nichepso and Petasiris. And so this creates a whole other um, f- range of texts that are roughly contemporaneous which also are, are sort of labeled Hermetic because they're given the same sensibility of, of featuring Hermes and, and different teachers passing knowledge to students, but this knowledge is less philosophical. Instead, it's more directed towards um, specific technical matters like astrology or alchemy or, or magic or things like that.
1: Yeah. And for a long time, a lot of scholars and academic people believe that there's basically like a firm, solid boundary between philosophical stuff—you know, the good stuff for academics and scholars to talk about—versus the technical stuff, which is you know illicit and magical and therefore superstitious, and you know, never the twain shall meet. And then we got the Nag Hammadi collection, which had Discourse Eighth Ninth, which is very much a ritual text. Like it's basically builds on the same cosmology that's built on in Corpus Hermeticum One. And it actually uses, you know, Barbara's words of power. It describes a ritual of spiritual elevation and ascent, you know, an actual ritual, not just a description of what happens to the soul, but an actual ritual with invocations and prayers and process that has all the hallmarks of being a technical text. And like that one text kind of blew up a lot of existing scholarship and scholarly opinions about Hermeticism back when it was discovered, because they thought, like, oh, you had this. You know, mostly Hellenic, you know philosophical movement that had some Egyptian window dressing on to make it seem you know mystical, but it was basically just popular Greek you know philosophy. And then you had this magical text that takes place in the same setting with the same people to actually do something. And it's a fascinating text and perspective from that perspective. And that's why there's really not so much of a distinction between practical and philosophical or, technical and theoretical like they both go hand in hand
0: sure so there yeah so it's like um there may have been less distinction in some text between technical and practical matters versus philosophical ones and sometimes you'll see an interchange between the two where in a philosophical text there will be some specific technical instructions like at the end of the um, discourse on the eighth and the ninth from the Nag Hammadi text, one of the things I felt I found really interesting about it is it it gives the teaching, and then at the end it says, and then I want you to write these teachings down and inscribe them on a specific thing, and then it gives a electional astrology rules. It tells you when to do this, and it says do it when I Hermes am in the sign of Virgo. And I think it says making a Heliacal rising or a helical setting or something like that, which is is actually very similar to some electional rules in Dorotheus of Sidon, which is a purely practical technical manual on electional astrology from the first century. So we can see in some of the hermetic philosophical or religious texts, like from Nakammati um astrological rules being integrated into them
1: as as part of the the doctrine exactly. We like to draw a distinction between philosophical, the high minded stuff versus the technical, the low minded stuff. But there never really was such a distinction. they They work together, sure. And I mean,
0: there was sometimes you know it, it is tricky because sometimes there are you know the practical text can have more of a practical bent and can be a little bit sparse on giving you the philosophical reasoning so that you have to like infer the philosophy from very brief passages. And this is often something that's we struggle with with the astrological text, for example, that it, it focuses on telling, teaching you how to do this, how to read charts and how to do astrology and doesn't usually focus as much on the overarching philosophical framework and similarly in some of the philosophical hermetica there is more of a focus on the overarching philosophy and sometimes doesn't go into the practical stuff as much as we we would like so so it's like there's still maybe some understanding of why that does, distinction came about but it just may not be as strict or as stark as some modern scholars have have
1: made it look like by creating those two categories exactly you know like you've seen the meme of you know the airplane with all the bullet holes that was returned, and people, you're know, like, oh, well, we need to reinforce, you know, the parts of the plane that have these bullet holes on it. No, those are the planes that actually made it back with those bullet holes. You need to reinforce the parts that don't have bullet holes. In much the same way, we only have what survives the knife of time and the redactor's pen. You know, the, Her- the Corpus Hermeticum is a collection of 17 books that happened to be compiled during the Byzantine time, during Byzantine era. You know. There are many more Hermetic texts that were written than what survived today. And of the ones that survived, we probably start need to think about, you know, why did they survive? Why were these ones chosen to be preserved in certain collections versus other ones that didn't? And of the ones that didn't survive, well, sometimes we get lucky. We find a cache of, you know, papyri, you know, like the Greek magic papyri or the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Nag Hammadi collections that actually do preserve some of these texts. Where, you know kind of fill in holes in our knowledge that we can only otherwise presume about what existed.
0: So one of the things, additionally, since you mentioned the doctrine, the discourse on the eighth and ninth, that was part of the the was the Hermetic text found in the Nag Hammadi library. One of my big discoveries is there had been a scholar named Joanna Kamerowska who, in two thousand four, I believe, published a book titled "Vadius Valens of Antioch: in an Intellectual Monography," which was a treatment of the second-century astrologer Radius Valens. And one of the things that she drew out was how he had some some Stoic, but especially some Hermetic influences on his philosophy. And um, specifically, there were these three passages especially which were these three times in the anthology in his practical astrological manuals where Valens makes the reader swear an oath. To keep the teachings secret and to not share them with the unlearned or the uninitiated. And Kamarowska um, speculated that these three passages were so formulaic that she kind of suspected that Valens might be getting them from another, possibly Hermetic source. And um, let me actually read it really quickly. So this is from my book. This is excerpted from my book, Hellenistic Astrology, in, in a translation of Valens. So it says Valens says, concerning this book then i must before all prescribe an oath for those who happen to encounter it that they may keep watch over what is written and withhold it in a manner appropriate to the mysteries i adjure them by the sacred cycle of the sun and the irregular courses of the moon and by the powers of the remaining stars and the circle of the 12 zodiacal signs to keep these teach to keep these things secret and not and and to not impart them to the unlearned or the uninitiated, and to give a portion of honor and remembrance to him who introduced them. May it go well for those who keep this oath, and may the aforementioned gods be in accord with their wishes, but may the opposite be the case for those who forswear this oath." So this oath shows up like three different times. And what's interesting is I actually found a parallel and I was really excited and I found it years later when I discovered and was reading through the Discourse on the 8th and the ninth. It has a very similar oath passage towards the very end of it that I thought um, may actually confirm Kamarowska's speculation that Valens's passage came from a a Hermetic text. So this is at the end of the Discourse on the 8th and the ninth, and it gives a similar oath where it says, I adjure you, who will read this holy book by heaven and earth and fire and water and seven rulers of substance and the creative spirit in them, and the unbegotten God and the self-begotten and the begotten, that you guard what Hermes has communicated. God will be at one with those who keep the oath and everyone we have named, but the wrath of each of them will come upon those who violate the oath." Now it's like I, I realize that there's a certain in terms of like oaths and things like that there's going to be similar formulas to a certain extent but I was just thought it was an interesting similarity that might confirm Camarasca's speculation that Valens was drawing on some earlier hermetic text and getting his oath passages and there might be some similarity as a result of that
1: it's totally possible I mean you even see similar a, a similar not a, Explicitly described oath, we do see something similar in Book Thirteen, the Corpus Hermeticum. You see similar things in I want to say it's the Eleventh Divine Fragment. Um, yeah, like there are definitely oaths that talk about you know when it comes to matters of secrecy, when it comes to matters of you know things to not be divulged to those who are not yet ready for them. You definitely see a number of similar oaths, Uh, and not just in the Corpus Hermeticum or other philosophical hermetic texts. I recall, I think it's. On like De Iside and Osiridae, an early alchemical text that also has a similar oath involved. Um, so yeah, like it's kind of hard to say really, because like the notion of mysteries needing to be kept oath-bound and secret, like that was definitely a common thing all across Mediterranean, especially the proliferation of mystery cults. So it's hard to say whether it was explicitly a hermetic thing. But given his other Hermetic tendencies, it wouldn't be surprised if he got influenced from specific Hermetic texts about that. Sure, yeah. And uh, her
0: her treatment, she goes into a much more detailed treatment of some of the parallels between some of Valens' philosophy and some of the Hermeticism. And what's interesting is sometimes she speculates that he's not—because Valens has always had really noted Stoic tendencies in his determinism—but she speculates that he's not getting it straight from early Stoic sources, but he's getting some of the Stoic influences from um, Hermetic sources that have picked up Stoicism and that are acting as intermediaries, and that's where some of the the more Stoic tendencies are coming from in Valens. So where do I want to go with that? One of the things that's worth picking up that's tricky, I know that we talked about very briefly before this is… There's a a later alchemist from I think around 300 CE named Zosimus, and he has this really interesting, very brief text, um, which is like a, a dialogue or discussion on the later on the letter Omega. Um, and in this text, he has some really interesting excerpts where he's talking about and he's drawing some philosophy and contrasting some philosophy from two different authors that he has access to and one of them is a hermetic text that's attributed to Hermes that seems to be giving a much more like stoic and deterministic philosophy of the world and of fate and this notion that you have to learn your fate so that you you can accept it and that you should accept your fate and he's contrasting that with another text that's attributed to Zoroaster where this text was saying that you should be able to use magic in order to control or change or somehow manipulate your fate. And I thought that was a really interesting contrast there and that there may be some tensions within the Hermetic tradition about some of the text may have been more stoic and deterministic in saying that you can't change your fate and that even if you learn your fate, like some of the astrologers like Valens and Manilius say, they tend towards determinism and say that you want to learn your fate so that you know what you have to accept about your future. And there may be some versions of Hermeticism that went that direction, versus there may be some other versions of Hermeticism that were thinking that fate was more negotiable and saying that you could use things like magic or ritual in
1: order to mitigate it to some extent. Oh boy. <laughs> um, okay. So, of Pamphilus, great alchemist, more of a Gnostic than Hermeticist. Um I don't know if I've maybe I seem him described as like a very heterodox Christian at points. I'm not entirely sure. Um he has an opinion and good for him.
0: Yeah, and I, I know this is something you feel strongly about because you tend to focus more on the, the magical tradition and the magical side of things, right? Not
1: always. So it really depends. And again, we only have what survives to us in their historical record. And all of the texts that survive to us, they don't actually make as firm a statement as what Zosimus himself says. And even in Zosmith's own On the Letter Omega, you know, when he talks about the distinctions, you know, when he distinguishes, you know, Hermes point of view from, from Zoroaster's point of view, Zoroaster says that you know, every, you know, the wise man can and should use magic to make the world better. Zosimus, I recall correctly, says something that Hermes says that while a wise man can do it, he should refrain from doing so. Not that he can't. Um. So it's emphasizing the primacy of fate and letting fate have primacy that Zosimus wants to draw attention to, and that's totally a legitimate approach to take. Like I can't think of any Hermetic texts off the top of my head that say as much in such explicit terms, but I can't see anything either that wouldn't. Let me let me pull up the
0: passage really quickly because I think I quoted it in my book. So this is from Zosimus. It's from translation by Howard M. Jackson, and it says, Now Zoroaster boastfully affirms that by the knowledge of all things supernatural and by the Magian science of the efficacious use of corporeal speech, one averts all the evils of fate, both those of individual and those of universal application. Hermes, however, in his book On the Inner Life condemns even the Magian science saying that the spiritual man one who has come to know himself need not rectify anything through the use of magic not even if he is considered a good thing not even if it is considered a good thing nor must he use force upon necessity but rather allow necessity to work in accordance with her own nature and decree he must proceed through that one search to understand himself And then when he has come to know God, he must hold fast to the ineffable triad and leave fate to work what she will upon the clay that belongs to her, that is, the body. So um, I mean, it might be this might be a good point to bring up the the Hermetica and the Hermetic philosophical texts and different texts attributed to Hermes, these are being written by like different people during different time periods. And with sometimes markedly, notably somewhat different philosophical outlooks and takes on things, so that the Hermetica, as we have it today, it's not one singular monoth- monolithic philosophy, but instead you'll see a lot of variations in the philosophy between different
1: Hermetic texts. Yes. So, like the way I like describing it is when you look at the Corpus Hermeticum, it's not one book. Like, there's a reason why I keep saying book one, book two, book three versus chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Like, they really are different texts just in a compilation of them. And rather than thinking of all these texts being written by one author, it's better to think of it's rather okay. So, to use a college metaphor, rather than thinking of Hermeticism as being a lecture by a professor in a lecture hall, it's better to think of like a panel debate between different professors, all in the same department. Like they're all not all the same thing. They're all doing more or less the same kind of study and research and practice, but they all have their own specific specialties and their own opinions. And they may have fights amongst each other. They may have disagreements and disputes, and that's totally fine. You know, Hermeticism was not a single thing. It was a loose, decentralized kind of mystic. I don't want to say movement per se, but an impulse that was shared amongst different places across several centuries. So it would not surprise me if Zosimos did find texts at the time that explicitly encouraged a submission to fate. End of. Right. But we also know that there were people at the time who were doing magic, who were also Hermeticists. Like we know for a fact that, you know, we have rings to, you know, Heal and get rid of and prevent physical maladies, you know, explicitly attributed to Hermes Trismegistus in the same time period we would expect. So we know there is magic being done under the name Hermes Trismegistus. So, right there, like it kind of throws Zosimus' claim into a really weird light. So, both approaches totally work. You know, whether you just want to do a strict submission to fate or whether you want to work with and apply fate. You know, both are totally legitimate. And I think it kind of points to a difference in the very nature of fate, or at least how it's perceived, between a more strictly deterministic Hellenic approach versus a more pliable Egyptian approach. Like in the Hellenic approach, fate was absolute. Like even the gods were subject to fate. But in the Egyptian approach, the gods were in control of fate. So if you made the right, you know, appeals, the right rituals, if you treated the gods the right way, they could change fate. And I think you see this uneasy attempt at at synthesis between those two views at times, or perhaps one view represented more than the other in certain hermetic texts. Mm. Right.
0: Yeah. And part of it, I guess, one thing that should be noted is how um, so, Garth Garth Foden in his book, The Egyptian Hermes, which is a really good treatment of Hermeticism, it was written back in the 1980s, so it's a little bit old now. And there's been some additional scholarship during that time, but it's still just a landmark book on Hermeticism. But he mentions how Iamblichus says that uh, Egyptian priests would um, or that there was a philosophical school that would attribute all of their teachings to Hermes. Um, and that they weren't doing this, he tries to reframe it because it previously was um thought to be by scholars, it's often portrayed as part of the pseudo-epigraphical tradition of attributing like your text to a god or to a legendary figure in order to make it look better and make it sell or get out there better in terms of like distribution in the ancient world, in terms of book publishing, and that it was viewed as like a some scholars frame it as a negative thing, but instead Foden um cites this practice and says, Iamblichus, that they're doing this in order to show that they have some sort of intellectual indebtedness or lineage to a specific tradition and sort of reframes it in that way. And I thought that was always a really interesting way then of understanding some of the hermetic texts, that they're doing this partially to signal their connection to and that they're not trying to be entirely um, you know, new or coming up with something fresh per se, but they're that they're part of a, a longer tradition that stretches back, and that's part of what that's about. Yeah, it's
1: a preservation of continuity, essentially the same idea. Like, Consider the Roman Empire. You know, the Roman Empire had this fascination with old things. Like, Even though they didn't much care for the Jews and Jews worshipping gods that weren't Zeus or Jupiter, they let the Jews maintain their thing because they were so old. But conversely, when the Christians came to the scene, the Romans Viciously chase after them because they were something new. So, in many of the same ways, you have this preservation of continuity to signal that not only are we indebted to, you know, the wisdom of old, the wisdom of, you know, our four, ancient forebears, you know, we are trying to continue that and preserve it and also develop it further for a modern day period. And so, like, yeah, like for Garth Bond like I think that's a very solid claim to make because as Fowden has showed as other scholars like Christian Bull, you know, who's greatly builds on the work of uh Garth Fowden you know, expands on it, you know, shows that there's so much, you know, Egyptian influence, Egyptian religiosity, religion uh, Egyptian mystic impulse embedded in the Hermetica. Like you might have to tease that a bit, but it's there. And in that sense, the Hermetic stuff can indeed be considered a continu uh a continuation of Older forms of religiosity of mysticism that may not have been explicitly exoterically preserved in temple cult or other records.
0: Okay, let me let me read that passage from Foden because it's it's so good. It's always stuck with me and it's helped me to understand better because we struggle with this with some of the early astrological texts, which also come from this Hermetic sort of um, thing that was happening in Alexandria and around Egypt, where the foundational authors of the Hellenistic astrological tradition, like some of the earliest authors tended to attribute their text to figures like Hermes or Asclepius or Necepso and Pedasiris and other figures like that so that they are in some ways sort of anonymous. And we don't know who the foundational authors of Hellenistic astrology are, but it's because it's tied in with this practice of potentially attributing it to signify some sort of lineage tradition. so Foden in wrestling with this says, it's perhaps unlikely that the pseudoepigrapha of this sort were, coldly, were cold-bloodedly or indiscriminately attributed to just any ancient or mythical figure in order to increase their authority or circulation, though this might be alleged by a hostile critic, as when Porphyry maintained that the Gnostic book of Zoroaster was entirely spurious and modern made up by the sectarians to convey the impression that the doctrines which they had chosen to hold in honour were those of the ancient Zoroaster. Rather, one should suppose in the Hermetic tradition, as among the Pythagoreans and Orphics, some sense of a continuity of inspiration of which each text added to the genre was seen as a new manifestation which could fairly, if not with pedantic precision, be ascribed to the eponymous founder. As As Iamblichus put it, since Hermes was the source of all knowledge, it was only natural that the ancient Egyptian priests should render him homage by attributing their writings to him. So we need not imagine that a spiritual teacher who was in the habit of circulating his compositions under the name of Hermes will have felt that he was perpetuating a deception or that he needed to dissemble what he was doing as potentially scandalous, and indeed his work will have gained weight in the eyes of his followers, precisely because it was not merely the product of an autonomous authorial act, but reflected the sedimentary intellectual culture of his own and earlier times. In short, because it did not strive after originality." So that might be a really important point here in terms of understanding the Hermetica and the different Hermetic texts that survive both the
1: philosophical ones as well as the practical ones. Yes, absolutely. And and that I think is a really good point to make. Like what makes a Hermetic text? Like it's not just the format. There is a tendency, like in the philosophical Hermetic texts, to use a dialogue format. That's not always necessary. We do have like the letter format or just like book three where it's just like amusing that's written down on paper. It's not just about, you know, the name Hermes being present. You know, whether it's Hermes to Asclepius or Hermes to Tat or Asclepius to Ammon, it's not necessarily just the people play present, because you also have other Hermetic texts where Hermes isn't involved at all, but it's a text between Agatha Diamond and Osiris. But because Agatha Diamond is also tied to Hermes in another way, it's still considered under the same overall purview. It's more about the content that matters. And again, that's really a fuzzy thing on its own, because you know where do you draw the distinction between uh, Gnostic texts versus Hermetic ones. You know, is it just the presence of a Christian element? You know, is it the lack thereof? You know, where you draw between a Jewish Gnostic text versus a Hermetic one? It can be really fuzzy at times. But some combination of you know, is Hermes ascribed to it or connected to it in some way, and does the content jive with the rest of the Hermetic content? You know, the, the rest of the Hermetic corpora out there. Like that's kind of what makes a Hermetic text Hermetic. And a good of course, people are expecting me to say it at some point, so I may as well say it now. This is a good example of why the Kabbalion is not Hermetic. Because even though it uses the name of Hermes, there's nothing in the Kabbalion that really relates to the classical Hermetic texts. Like that's a case where it's just using the name for you know an argument from authority. Like there's nothing really in the Kabbalion that perpetuates the same mystic impulse, the same cosmology, the same salvific element, the same. Theosophical desire to know oneself and to know God. That's part and parcel of the rest of the Hermetic texts.
0: Right. So, so part of your point is that um, after the classical period, like after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, during the Middle Ages, there continued to be later texts that would be attributed to Hermes. And then into the Renaissance and even into the modern period, there have been other texts that have been you know, said to be hermetic or attributed to Hermes that aren't necessarily closely or if at all tied to this earlier collection of texts that we're talking about that we, we associate with like the Corpus Hermeticum and other stuff from
1: that era of the first few centuries CE. Exactly. Like consider a bunch of alchemical stuff nowadays. Like I will definitely say that alchemy is hermetic, like in the traditional sense, in the classical sense. Because we can from a modern alchemical text written in the West today, we can trace its influences With the same impulses, the same methods, the same fundamental desires through the modern period, through the Renaissance period, through the Arabic period, right back to the classical period. So like it derives from the technical side, it really focuses and centers the technical side of things rather than the philosophical side. But it's still there. Like it's still Hermetic. But then you have other texts where it's just you're gonna slap on the name of Hermes and just call it a day. Like in one uh, Arabic text, the Sayings of the Wise by I want to say Ibn Mubashir. Um, he has a whole bunch of you know various bits of you know hermetic guidance and you know well, hermetic you know bits of guidance and advice and you know moral lessons and you know, how to lead a nation and so forth. That sure some of them you might kind of see associated with hermetic doctrines in earlier hermetic texts, but largely it's just. General Islamic notions of morality that have been proposed as being pre Islamic and therefore pagan but still righteous it really depends on text text. I think it's really messy and hairy, but yeah, there is a distinction between like someone taking the name of Hermes just the sale just for the purpose of you know selling more books versus someone taking the name of Hermes to indicate a continuity of tradition, which kind of you know, was what Foda was getting at,
0: yeah, right that makes sense um. Okay, so and you know, this is really tricky and to circle back around to the astrology, like I was saying, there's a similar parallel where something happened in ancient Hellenistic astrology, and I spend a lot of time in the early part of my book talking about this, the origins of Hellenistic astrology, because even though we had um up until the before prior to the first century BCE, let's say, we had different traditions of astrology first there was one in Mesopotamia, or you know, ancient. Let's say the Babylonian astrological tradition is what it's sometimes referred to, where they developed birth charts and natal astrology, or just the concept of birth charts, as well as mundane astrology and and the distinction between benefic and malefic planets, and a complex astronomy. So there's an astrological tradition that stretches back at least 2,000 years before Hellenistic astrology that's in Mesopotamia. And then also in Egypt, they had their own indigenous astrological tradition that stretches back 2,000 years that centered around the 36 decans and the rising and culminating of different decans indicating times when different religious rituals were done and different things like that. So there were previous astrological traditions, but then all of a sudden these traditions converge, um in Egypt, during the Hellenistic period, especially around the first and second century bCE. and then out of that emerges this new system that clearly has a precedent in earlier concepts that came from Babylon from the Mesopotamian and Egyptian traditions. But then there's the introduction of a bunch of new concepts as well as this sort of like systemization of the concepts that that seems to emerge at this time. And what's weird about it is that it has one of these quasi-Hermetic lineages where the astrologers, like the foundational texts, unfortunately don't survive, but the astrologers keep citing these Hermetic lineages as if there were actual texts attributed to these figures where the astrological doctrines were introduced. So the most famous passage is from Firmicus Maternus, who is a 4th-century astrologer, and he says, we have written down in these books all the things which Hermes and Hanubius handed down to Asclepius, which Petasiris and Nechepso explained, which Abraham, Orpheus, and Critodemus wrote, and all the others who are knowledgeable in this art. And similarly, it's like Anonymous of 379 who wrote on the fixed stars writes a sort of similar lineage where he says, by examining in many books how it was handed down to us by the wise ancients, that is by the Chaldeans and Pedicerus, and especially the king Nechepso, just as they also based themselves on our lord Hermes together with Islepius, who is of amothus, son of Hephaestus, in accordance with the time given to me for the first year of the lord Antonius Caesar." So these like Hermetic lineages keep coming up over and over again in the early astrological texts that survive from the first few centuries CE. And it's led me to think and believe that there was actually an early collection of texts um, that were practical astrological manuals that introduced some of the fundamental principles of this new sort of approach or tradition of astrology that we, we call Hellenistic astrology around the first century BCE. And these practical manuals, like the Philosophical Hermetica, were attributed to figures like Hermes or Asclepius or Nichepso and Pedasiris, And that's why we have so many later astrologers citing these legendary names but attributing very specific astrological doctrines to them.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: Yeah, so in that way, the Philosophical Hermetica, though, sometimes become a useful tool for understanding what the Um, Technical, the early technical astrological foundational manuals might have looked like. Um, And similarly, vice versa, the hermetica, the philosophical hermetica sometimes might provide a useful backdrop for understanding some of the philosophy that may have informed um, some of the astrology that we only see sort of practical discussions about in the practical manuals because that's primarily all they're concerned about. But sometimes the philosophical Hermetica may fill us in on some of the broader cosmological motivations that might be underlying some of those texts.
1: Yes, like what comes to mind is um, the sixth divine fragment, um, which is probably the most technical of all the divine Hermetica there is, and it talks a lot about you know again its cosmological model of you know Earth and then the planets and the stars, and it actually goes beyond the planets and talks about you know. The sphere of the stars and then the sphere of the Deccans, and how the Deccans themselves exert an influence on the planets and therefore on us down here, and how they cause earthquakes and plagues in certain ways, and the spiritual daimonic elements that go into that as well. You know, how they have assistance or liturgoy, um, that actually affect these things, and how they also impact meteorological phenomena as well. And it actually talks like, you know, Describes in depth, you know, how these things relate to each other, and then where that leaves us in how to you know, actually get the vision of God. So it really ties it all together, in like a really neat little package. Right, that makes sense. And also, come to think of it, mythologically, you know, knowing that the figure of Hermes Trismegistus is based on the Egyptian Thoth, you know, Thoth was the Lord of Time. You know, a lord of time rather in Egyptian mythology. Like he actually kept track of the calendar. He actually established the calendar year of 360 plus five days.
0: Why don't we talk about that since I don't think we ever introduced the Hermes Thoth distinction? So those are two gods in these respective. There was Hermes in the Greco Roman uh, pantheon of gods, and then there was Thoth in the Egyptian pantheon of gods. So each of those were independent at first, and what was the what were the qualities associated with, let's say, Thoth
1: first, who who maybe was, let's say, the older maybe god in the Egyptian tradition? Um Well, they both presided over matters of communication, of writing, of intellectual things. And it kinda gets really hairy, even from a really early point, because while I like to see them as independent, historically that may not have really been the case. Like the Greeks, literally, it wasn't just you know Thoth is their equivalent to Hermes, Thoth is their translation of Hermes, and Hermes is our translation of Thoth. So they really didn't so much identify, but they translated the gods as each other, which seems like a really kind of splitting hairs distinction, but it does kind of point that they really did identify them in at least a sense from like from the get go. So
0: increasingly. Increasingly in the Hellenistic tradition, they they did be start to be treated as interchangeable, and it became this this melded thing of of Thoth and Hermes from the Egyptian and the Hellen and the Greek tradition becoming one and, and interchangeable in some ways.
1: Yeah, and they they still obviously recognize differences. Like, yeah, like way we recognize Hermes here is not how they recognize recognize Hermes down in Egypt. Like, they always were aware of that, but they did see similarities in matters of their being gods of communication of language of the power of speech and of words um obviously thoth never had the associations of like pastoralism and you know watching over flocks of sheep like hermes did in greece and likewise hermes in greece never really had the kind of cosmic pentocrator panc- rule that you know thoth had in egypt at times and thoth was like a ibis headed god right yeah mm-hmm. In some forms, he had the head of an ibis. In other forms, he took the form of a baboon, Um, baboons because they uh, worship the Sun at sunrise. But generally, we see him as an ibis-headed god because his beak was indicative of not just the shape of the Moon being a counter of time for the month, but also of reed pins by which priests and scribes would write. Right, and an ibis is like a
0: bird, Mm -hmm. so I'm showing it. Thoth a depiction of Thoth, which you can look up on Wikipedia for those watching the video version or those not watching if you're just listening to the audio and and one of the things that's interesting is in the Egyptian tradition, Thoth was associated with the moon originally, um which is actually important to me tie into some later astrological developments, but then in the Greek tradition, Hermes came to be associated with the planet Mercury,
1: yeah, and we <sighs> so. In one of the more well-known but lesser-known Hermetic texts, the Kore Cosmu, the Virgin of the World, you do see a primordial Hermes figure who takes the role of Hermes Hermes Rysimusist, who you know, from whom this mystical knowledge comes, but he's explicitly identified as the planetary god Hermes, you know, the planetary god Mercury. And you don't really see actually you also see that, you know, in Discourse 8 and ninth, you know, at the end of the instruction, you know you know, inscribe these on turquoise tablets when I am half past Virgo. You know, he's referring to himself, but also himself as the planetary deity. Yeah, that's one of the things I love in at the end of the discourse, the eighth and ninth
0: that Hermes starts speaking of himself in the first person as if he is the planet Mercury.
1: Yeah. I can't think of an instance where Hermes and Gistus is described in explicitly lunar terms. I mean, I can come up with like a very poetical, exegetical kind of thing, but I can't think of anything explicitly sourced the text. So perhaps by the time the Hermetic texts were composed, you know, no earlier than the first century, more likely in the second or third, you know, by that point the identification had already gone so far of Hermes Hermes not just as the Hellenic Hermes or the Egyptian Thoth, but as the syncretic mortal descendant of the gods. You know, there's already the lunar stuff had already been forgotten. It was already focused on the planetary Mercury stuff.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think definitely in the Hellenistic period forward, that it, Hermes Trismegistus came to be associated with Mercury, even if um, it took over and was th- seen to be an interchangeable with Thoth. The previous Egyptian lunar association was lost for the most part. Although there are some similar thing, interesting things in terms of the planetary joys scheme, and the association of the moon with the third house in the planetary joys scheme that could set up a precedent for why the third house later came to be associated with communication and writing, um, but so did Mercury as well. I want I want to mention the planetary joys scheme though because I think this is really important and crucial. So the planetary joys scheme is a very early and very foundational astrological doctrine that appears to be introduced in the Hellenistic astrological tradition um, where it associates each of the seven traditional planetary bodies with one of the 12 houses or one of the 12 places. And it associates uh, the Sun with the ninth house, which it also calls the place of God. And the planetary joy scheme also becomes the motivation for giving specific names to some of the houses or some of the places. So the Sun is associated with the ninth. The Moon is opposite to that, is associated with the third house, which is called the place of goddess. Um, Venus is associated with the fifth house, which is called the place of good fortune. And that's opposite to the place of Jupiter, which is the eleventh house, which is the place of good spirit. And then we have Mars assigned to the sixth house, which is the place of bad fortune. And Saturn to the 12th house, which is the place of bad spirit. And then finally, we have Mercury, which is associated with the first house, um, which is called the helm. Uh, and, you know, there's a distinction where Mercury is associated with the first house, which is kind of in between. And it plays this in between role where you have the daytime planets in the top half of the chart, which are the sun, Jupiter, and Saturn. And then you have the nighttime planets in the bottom half of the chart, which are the Moon, Venus, and Mars using the distinction known as sect, which is the distinction between day and night charts. And then Mercury is associated with the first house, which is it can be part of the first house using whole sign houses, in the Hellenistic tradition is always part of it's above the horizon and part of it's below the horizon. So Mercury plays this intermediary role where it's sort of in between or has a foot in both worlds. And can sort of go back and forth between them. And then also the first house in the technical doctrine of Hellenistic astrology that arose at this time, the first house is associated with both the mind as well as the body of the individual who was born at that time. So this is leading to some deeper insights into Mercury. And I think it's important because in my work, I actually traced this back. And I think the earliest reference that we can find to this planetary joys scheme um, points to a text that was attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, and it's actually one of the earliest references to Hermes Trismegistus in the Greek astrological tradition where the first-century astrologer Thrasyllus cites this text on the 12 places that's attributed to Hermes, and he draws some very early and very basic significations of the houses from that text. And one of the things that I argued in my book is that I think the very first or one of the first texts that ever introduced the concept of the Twelve Houses and that introduced this planetary joys scheme was a text that was attributed to Hermes Trismegistus that was written probably sometime around the 1st or 2nd century BCE, and it became so successful that it influenced much of the later astrological tradition, which then adopted that that technique or that doctrine of the Twelve Houses. And the planetary joy scheme, but it means that a really crucial foundational doctrine for all of Western astrology that's been used for 2000 years originally came from a
1: Hermetic text. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's not particularly surprising. Only, you know, again, knowing actually, I actually don't know the answer to this question. Maybe it's a foolish question to ask. At what point did the planet Mercury itself become associated with astrology?
0: It was at this time period. I mean, I I don't actually know if, I I can't answer that if it was associated with astrology in the earlier Mesopotamian tradition, but I know certainly by the early Hellenistic period, like right away, you start seeing Mercury as being the primary planet that's associated with astrology at that point
1: very consistently. Okay. Because I'm thinking now of like the quarter cosmos, the version of the world, you know, that one text I mentioned. And among Hermetic texts, it's r- really a strange text, and I personally quibble over calling it a Hermetic text, period. Um, but the god Hermes, you know, in this case, would be like the primordial Hermes Trismegus, as opposed to the immortal teacher who came later on, takes a huge role in the creation of human bodies and setting things up for us to actually live down here. You know, not just in, you know, setting aside mysteries for later humans to discover, but also for like allowing us to be incarnate at all. And that's actually huh, I actually wouldn't have made that distinction, but or that association with Hermes having joined the first, the rule of the body. Huh. Ah. Right. That's pretty nifty.
0: It's really important. And and this notion also of Hermes connecting, you know, the, the upper world of what becomes in the planetary joy scheme, the realm of like the mind and the spirit with
1: the lower world of the body and the physical incarnation and things like that. Yeah. I Mercury always gets the middle position, either as a mediator or like, you know, among the orifice of the head, the mouth, gets the middle of everything, which also rules over speech, of course. Yeah. Yes, like I always Hermes has always been like a mediator figure. Like even the Hellenic system, you know, he's the messenger of the gods. And if you look at ancient religion, you know you have this notion of Hermi, you know, these statues that you'd find at crossroads or in temples, which were really like the focal point by which you communicated with the gods. Like you see, you know, Greek pottery vessels of you know dramatic you know settings of people like, you know, clutching on to these statues of Hermi, which weren't necessarily always of Hermes specifically, but they were always associated with him, you know, as a format, as it were. So like even the hellenic system hermes was always the intermediary between us and the divine and in the corpus hermeticum and other hermetic texts hermes is always again the intermediator between us and the divine just in the other way you know sent by the divine to us so that we can ourselves reach to the divine
0: yeah and then that's brilliant and then all over the practical astrological texts not just in the joys but also in other doctrines like benefic and malefic there's said to be two groups of planets there's like the the good doers, the benefic planets, which are Venus and Jupiter, and there are the bad doers, which are the malefic planets, which are Mars and Saturn, but Mercury is said to be in between, and that he can go either way depending on what his condition is in the chart. Or in the doctrine of sect, there's the daytime planets and there's the nighttime planets, and Mercury is neither one, but he can go either way depending on how he's situated in the chart. Yeah, makes sense to me. Yeah, so um, let's see one last to round out the houses thing. What's cool about this is that Thrasilus actually preserves and cites the significations of the houses that are given according to this early, early text attributed to Hermes Trismegistus that was apparently written on the 12 houses. And the set of significations that it gives for the houses are so basic that they basically look like a rudimentary or super early and perhaps the very first attempt to attribute significations to the first 12 to the 12 houses so according to thraslist it says that hermes says the first house is called the helm and that it signifies fortune soul way of life and siblings the second house is said to signify hopes or expectations the third house signifies action and siblings the fourth house indicates the foundation of happiness, paternal possessions, and slaves. Since its first century, Greco-Roman Egypt, um, and then the fifth century, or the fifth house is good fortune. The sixth house is called demonic, maybe fortune, but also the sixth indicates punishment, injury, uh, punishment and injury. The seventh house is said to signify death and also the wife. The 8th house is said to signify life and livelihood. The ninth is travel and living abroad. The 10th is fortune, livelihood, life, children, procreation, action or occupation, esteem, authority, and ruling. The 11th house is good spirit, and the 12th house is bad spirit, pre-ascension, livelihood, and also is associated with the submission of slaves. So we have this text attributed to Hermes, which is a super early foundational text on the houses, and we can see how some of these significations became both the core significations for those houses as well as the names that later astrologers continued to give to them for centuries. And those names are connected with the planetary joys scheme, and that's why I've argued that the planetary joys scheme was probably first introduced in this Hermetic text because this is the first reference we can find to it. because. Thrasyllus died in like 37 CE, which means he wrote this text probably in the early first century CE. Which means if he was drawing on an earlier text attributed to Hermes, then it can't be later than like the first century BCE and maybe as early as like the second century BCE. So this makes it basically a foundational text. Um, what's interesting is that not long after that text, or sometime after, there was another text. That was attributed to Asclepius, which is also on the houses, and it introduced and modified some of the significations of the houses attributed to Hermes. So in this Asclepius text, according again to Thrasyllus, um, so he's citing something from probably the 1st century BCE, the 1st house signifies life, the 2nd house signifies livelihood, the 3rd house indicates siblings, the 4th house is parents, the 5th is children, the sixth is injury, the seventh is wife, and the eighth is fortune and death. So so what's interesting is this text fills out some additional significations and in particular assigns some family members to different houses for the first time, like associating children with the fifth house um, or associating death with the eighth house. And what happened is that later treatments of the houses tended to synthesize the. Hermes' set of significations with the Asclepius' set of significations so that they became one and the same in later texts like Ptolemy or Valens or whoever. But um, the important point is I'm just showing how in the philosophical and technical Hermetica, somehow out of that whole um, grouping of, of stuff and that whole social climate came some of the foundational doctrines of Western astrology. And that's one of the reasons why it's important. For us to investigate as astrologers or people that are interested in astrology, because it had real practical implications for
1: the the practice of this subject for the next two thousand years. So you mentioned that you know, based the time period, you know, any text that Thrasyllus would have relied upon, if he did at all, you know, would have probably been written in the first, maybe even as early as the second century BCE. Right. So that's you know, solid Ptolemaic period of Egypt. I'm thinking to kind of you know, take a parallel here. Um, alchemy, you know, alchemy is very well regarded as you know a hermetic art. We don't actually see any alchemy in the hermetic philosophical Hermetica, like it's just not there. Like we can certainly interpret those things in an alchemical way, and there was alchemy of a sort being done, you know, in the first and second and third century CE. Largely, it was just based on Egyptian metallurgy, dye making, making metals look like other metals, that was later spiritualized and philosophized through like, the works of like Zosimus and Mary the Jewess and so forth. You have this kind of idea of you know, a craftsmanship, a trade coming first, and then a philosophy later on building on top of it. And I'm thinking of the current scholarly consensus of the Hermetic philosophical texts, like the Corpus Hermeticum, Asclepius, and so forth, which we don't know specifically when they were written. It's one of the issues of them being basically anonymous writings, you know, but we generally hypothesize them to be written between like the first through fourth century CE, more likely second and third. And if you know was relying on something much earlier, you know, even if the Hermetic texts had earlier Antecedents that we just don't know about or haven't survived, you know, this might be a similar thing of philosophizing an existing craftsmanship or trade. You know, in this case, you know, a technical astrological system came up and then a follow up, you know, salvific mystic kind of tradition built on top of that. That's totally a thing that might have happened. Not saying it did, but that's totally a workable theory.
0: Yeah. Well, and one of the questions is, this has been one of the debates in astrological circles when it comes to Hellenistic astrology and the recovery recovery of it over the past few decades was,, um, to what extent was one, does it represent a sudden invention where large parts of the system were introduced all at the same time, either by one person or by a school of people, which would be, you know, if there was a Hermes figure, whoever wrote a text under the name Hermes that introduced that initial set of significations for the houses, how much how many techniques did that person come up with at that time versus was there a school or a lineage that introduced several texts like the Hermes text, then the Asclepius text, then Nechepso and Petasirius, And was that part of the same school or lineage that introduced? Many of the core techniques or systemized them over a relatively short span of time, of like, let's say, a generation or two. And that's why the system comes out of, seems so sudden from our vantage point and whether, and um, seems somewhat unified or integrated. So it's a really interesting possibility if that's true to some extent versus how much is it, was it just a gradual development that all kind of came together from many different pieces over different generations and just looks sort of systemized in retrospect, but is not as much as we might think today. So that's that's one question. And the other question was, if some of these techniques were introduced relatively quickly from a technical standpoint, how much did they have an underlying philosophy or cosmology behind them that was originally meant to go with them? Which is kind of an interesting question. Um, additionally, if there actually could have been, if the philosophy didn't actually or you know arise later separately, but instead was somehow built into the techniques to a certain extent. Those are both
1: great questions, which I have no great answer.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we don't, we can't fully answer those questions. But there's some interesting things, and it brings up something because the closest. This is actually a recent discovery. Um, so about a a year or two ago, some of the first uh, times the full. Text of Abu Mashar's great introduction, which was this ninth-century translation of this this massive, massive introduction to astrology from one of the most famous medieval astrologers who wrote in Arabic in Baghdad in the 9th century, Abu Mashar. Um, in his introduction to astrology, which was translated for the first time a year or two ago by by two different translators, first Charles Burnett and then Benjamin Dykes, Abu Mashar. Um, when he's introducing and describing some basic concepts, like how the planets came to be assigned rulership of different signs of the zodiac, like you know Mars to Aries and Venus to Taurus, or how the planets came to be assigned exaltations, he starts quoting and citing and um, um, summarizing a lost, what appears to be a lost Greek text that was attributed to Hermes and he keeps talking about how in this text Hermes introduces these concepts through some sort of revelational dialogue with Agathos Daimon um through again some sort of revelatory experience that almost sounds very similar to the Corpus Hermeticum Corpus Hermeticum 1 and that we read earlier and i think that's actually if there was some early hermetic text that introduced some of the basic principles of astrology We can see glimpses of it in this text that Abu Mashar had access to that no longer survives in Greek because the way he describes it sounds very mythic, sort of like the um, first book of the Corpus Hermeticum where it's like this revelational but also has this mythic quality to it where it's talking about the creation of the cosmos in these very broad overarching terms. And I think some of those early hermetic texts had that sense where they were blended in both introducing techniques, but also having some philosophical or sort of spiritual notions underlying them, and were probably presented in some sort of dialogue format as being part of a revelation of some sort from a student
1: to a teacher, or from some sort of god to a student, or or what have you. Yeah, sounds totally feasible to me. I, if it's it's you mentioned yourself, it's not extant anymore. But you know, I'm thinking of other Arabic texts that are written around similar time periods by Mubashir, by a whole bunch of other you know, people who wrote in Arabic whose names I can't remember because they're all kind of blur after a point for me. But like there's definitely instances of you know Hermes getting a revelation from some entity, usually Akhtis, Diamond. Poimandres you only ever really see in like a book one and like one reference in book thirteen of the Corpus Hermeticum. But for Hermes to have a teacher, a divine teacher. Usually, Arctus Diamond is very common, even in the classical period. And I'm thinking even as like, as, like the Picatrix, you know, the Gayat <laughs> al Hakim, you know, where Hermes is given this quasi revelation by the perfect nature, you know, Taba'atam, where like he's told like how to descend into this pit, you know, to get its secrets out, which is itself a variation on the same story of Apollonius of Tiana getting the Emerald Tablet from the tomb of Hermes Trismegistus. But it's this very similar notion. So, it's not surprising that similar myths would have been around in various forms, perhaps gone through several iterations, kind of like a game of telephone over centuries went on. But, like, for that kind of format to be preserved, wouldn't it all be surprising?
0: Yeah. It it just, it was always, it kind of blew my mind reading that translation for the first time a year or two ago and realizing that probably was the form of some of these early texts. That were foundational to astrology and introduced not just the planetary joy scheme, but also introduced doctrines like the thema mundi, which was the supposed birth chart for the creation of the cosmos. But also, one of our early authors, Antiochus, refers to the thema mundi and says that it's supposed to be looked at metaphorically or philosophically as like the chart of God, the birth chart of God, or the birth chart of the cosmos. And that the chart of the the cosmos is supposed to be compared to the chart of men in order to understand um, some, some sort of analogy between them of comparing like the perfect chart basically to the chart of individuals in some way. Um, but it all takes on this very interesting sort of mythic quality then when you're understanding that. And it also makes sense of some of the early astrologers like Vadius Valens are constantly complaining about the earlier source texts that they're drawing on such as Nechapso and Pedasiris and saying that they're written in a very cryptic manner that's difficult to understand. So there may have been some issues with some of these texts being associated with mystery traditions and using devices in order to obscure their language a little bit or where if you read the text, it was kind of like open to interpretation and was very mysterious in some way.
1: I'm thinking now of Egyptian religious practices, especially in like, you know, modern revivalist and reconstructionist practices, where a large number of rituals are meant to recreate the myths of Zeptepi, the first time, you know, the primordial time before time, the golden age, as it were, where, you know, the myths themselves were happening. And by recreating those myths, that's where ritual comes into play. So, like the notion of you know comparing the Thema Mundi to a person's natal horoscope to actually, you know, see how one relates to the birth of the cosmos, like that could be a play out of that same notion of a mythic reenactment of ritual. Mm. And you know, thinking of a large number of the ritual content of some of the technical hermetica, some of the mystic impulses we see, you know, they're not Framed in the texts explicitly as priestly activities, but we know there is definitely priestly influence, especially if you compare a bunch of the technical stuff from like the Greek magic papyri, where it's like very clearly like an opening in the mouth ceremony, but dumbed down. And you know, like it's like the wish version of an opening the mouth ceremony, you know, for very simple recreation at home, you know, for priest activities to influence these things or priestly knowledge to be replicated. Whether or not it was obscured, like that would make sense. You know, if there were Egyptian influences in this stuff, Egyptian priestly influences, it would make the most sense for it to come down along these avenues in these ways.
0: Mm, okay. Uh, well, that's really important then. And that I think, that allows us to bring us to the end part of this where I wanted to share this one quote again from Nicola Densley Lewis that always stuck with me because I, I go back and forth between liking how she framed it and thinking that's insightful and then other times wondering if that is how it was but um in this quote so this is again from Nicola Denzil Lewis and it's from her book Introduction to Gnosticism on page 211 um this book is largely on gnosticism and gnostic texts from like Nag Hammadi but then she has this chapter on hermeticism because hermetic texts were found In these Gnostic texts as well, so she has to deal with it as as a connected thing. So she refers to the Hermetica as the ancient equivalent of sort of like New Age literature in modern times and says, quote, think of them as sort of ancient pop culture New Age documents. They contained astrological, astronomical, botanical, medical, alchemical, and magical writings, as well as more traditional essays on Platonism and Stoicism we also find Jewish and ancient Egyptian elements in the mix, making the Hermetica the most eclectic corpus of ancient writings that exist. Um, And then she goes on to say that they probably came from the middle class in Alexandria rather than highly educated elites and focused on reconnecting with the divine by looking within. So there's some part of that that is interesting and resonates with me because it accounts for some of the synthesis and the eclecticism that we do see in the Hermetica um, of incorporating a number of different doctrines from a number of different places, especially if it's coming from like a cultural melting pot of a place like Alexandria that had so many different cultures and philosophies mixing together that if you were like a middle-class philosopher and you're studying and taking different pieces from all of them, this might be kind of what you end up with, something that looks like this, that takes some of the best pieces from all of them. And it's relatable in a way because if you think about people that are interested in, let's say, New Age or occult studies today in modern times, that's also kind of what people end up doing is they may not be super high level philosophers that are like picking one specific philosophical school and then like going to Harvard to study it but instead most of us have much more practical concerns of of you know wanting to know our future or wanting to know our fate or learn how to live with a sort of philosophy that's practical and, and understandable to some extent and have some exposure to that, but at the same time we're sort of taking bits and pieces from everywhere and putting them together in some sense. And the modern New Age movement is very similar in that way in that it tends to be very eclectic, right? Yes, although I don't like how that author t- described it. I know, it it does it does have an air of like downplaying it or or treating it as, as, a, as a negative thing to a certain extent, that is also the part I don't like because I go back to the other range, which is actually, for example, the Hermetic astrological text may have been a very profound and very deep um, thing. And some of the, the philosophical Hermetica similarly have some very deep and profound insights. So So there's the other range which is treating it as a much more exalted and much more advanced and interesting thing. But I guess… I just, it's interesting if you do think about some of the Hermetic stuff as things that people in Alexandria would have appealed to them and understanding it as a circulation of knowledge that can tend to be more eclectic when it's at the middle
1: class sort of level of like normal everyday people. So, like, Brian Copenhaver, I think, I don't know if he talks about this in his introduction to his book, but I know he's talked about it on like other podcasts and papers and so forth. He's called the philosophical Hermetic text. Popular spiritual texts, but not popular in the sense of like, you know, a pop star, like not popular as in so you have something trendy, but popular in the sense of something accessible to people. Like you go to a church, like if you go to like a Catholic church, you're not going to see like the priest, like rituali Romanum. Like you're not going to get access to like that book that actually tells you at what point you lived up the Eucharist. No, popular in that case is like the church prayer book you get at a pew. Like it's accessible to people, or actually, well, hold on for a better analogy. Well, not a better. I'm not.
0: It's not gating. But what about somebody like Deepak Chopra, for example, in modern times? I don't. I don't know how I feel about Deepak Chopra, but just or or if there's an analogy like that of somebody who is kind of taking, let's say, higher level philosophical and spiritual, and maybe even scientific, like prevailing scientific concepts at the time, and then repackaging them for the middle class in a more approachable fashion. Like, could we say it's something like that in a sense? While I have feelings and pains about Deepak Chopra, I think that's okay. kind of on the right track. I mean, is um, there another author like that that we could? Because I was going to say the secret, but I don't like going there oh, either. No, no no, 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 okay. no, no. Okay, let's not go there. <laughs> there, there there's got to be some other type of writer who's like that, or even if we're thinking about like science writers, like somebody that plays the role of like a Carl Sagan or a Neil deGrasse Tyson who takes these yeah, advanced. Yeah, along those com- lines.
1: Like someone, like someone who. Is in a priestly or otherwise authoritative position who knows these things and also knows how to make them accessible to people on loss. Like that I think is fair. And like in the Hermetic text, we give this notion of different kinds of discourses that Hermes would have given. Like bear in mind, these are dialogues for the most part. And different levels, potentially. Yes. Like there's sort the of like the general discourses, which are which we can assume to be like Hermes 101. And there's like other more specialized discourses that are referenced. And we don't really know what those would have consisted of. We don't know if it's just like a purely literary thing, but we do know there's this notion of like certain things being were accessible to more people and then things that were otherwise held in reserve for those who were ready for them, those who had gone through the basic stuff who were already ready to graduate to the next level. And there, so there's debates
0: about that of which then dialogues that survive or which of the texts of the Corpus Hermeticum that survive different scholars rank them as being these are the basic ones, and this is the more intermediate, and these might be the more advanced ones. And while there's debates about the correct ordering, it's still interesting the notion that there may be levels to these, and there also may be revisions of doctrines that are introduced in the earlier ones that are then changed at higher levels. Like for example, in um, Christian Bull in this recent book, The Tradition of Hermes Trismegistus, I think argues that which yeah, an amazing book, um, I would recommend. It just came out a few years ago. It, it um, they recommend or or say one of his arguments. I believe by the end is that some of the initial Hermetic texts may have begun with more of a dualistic focus on the body being negative, but then once you got to some of the later texts, that there was this notion of that being transcended and things being a little bit more neutral than they were at at lower levels.
1: Yeah, so it's. One of the main theses that Christian Bull has, and it's a great text. I recommend everyone to read it. It's a thesis, but it's worth it. Um, It builds on one of the theses of Garth Fowden in his Egyptian Hermes. Before Fowden, you had this notion of people trying to classify hermeticism as an either-or phenomenon, like some hermeticists were dualists and some hermeticists were monists, and like that was the end of it. Fowden proposed that it wasn't so much an either-or; it was a both-and, but at different points. And this is where the notion of a way of Hermes would have arisen, where you start from one perspective to kind of get the easy way in, and then you progress to a different part. So in Fallon's idea, you know, he proposed that you know, you start as a, with a monist text to kind of get you situated and comfortable with the notion of God and the creation of all things and your place in it as part of all things and so forth. And then you progress to a more sharply dualistic approach where you're ready to cut yourself off from your body to more easily allow your soul to reach divinity. Bull takes that same idea but flips it around, where you start with a dualist approach to kind of get yourself trained in the rigors of spiritual discipline, And then once you're able to kind of break things apart and separate yourself, then you integrate things knowingly and cohesively in a more monist approach. It's kind of very Solway at Coagula kind of alchemical approach. And I really favor Bull's interpretation here a lot more.
0: Okay. Um, Yeah. And this is really, let me read the summary of the, I want to ask you actually one thing. to clarify the way of Hermes, which is a term that's used very frequently, and I'd like some clarification of that. But let me read the description of Christian Bull's book really quickly because it kind of summarizes, I think, his primary argument and thesis. It says, In the tradition of Hermes Trismegistus, Christian H. Bull argues that the treatises attributed to Hermes Trismegistus reflect the spiritual exercises and ritual practices of loosely organized brotherhoods in Egypt. These small groups were directed by Egyptian priests educated in the traditional lore of the temples, but also conversant with Greek philosophy. Such priests who were increasingly dispossessed with the gradual demise of the Egyptian temples could find eager adherents among a Greek-speaking audience seeking for the wisdom of the Egyptian Hermes, who was widely considered to be an important source for the philosophies of Pythagoras and Plato. The volume contains a comprehensive analysis of the myths of Hermes Trismegistus, a reevaluation of the way of Hermes, and a contextualization of this ritual tradition. So that's sort of where that's coming from and it is interesting and starts to take us into some really interesting insight in terms of what the philosophical Hermetica may have come out of, but also potentially what some of the technical astrological texts that were attributed to Hermes and Asclepius and other figures like Nechepso and Petosiris could have come out of as well. And that's really important in terms of uh, where astrology comes from and and whether it had underlying philosophies or philosophical motivations and also who came up with it and who came up with some of these techniques and systemizations that we see from the 1st century BCE forward.
1: Yeah, it's a great text. Like, it goes over like the development of the Hermetic texts as he could theorize how it could fit into the Egyptian milieu, you know, in the priestly milieu versus the popular milieu. You know, it's it's a magisterial text. Like it's one of the best modern pieces of scholarship, comprehensive pieces of scholarship that exist. And it builds on so much. Of course, there are criticisms of it abounding, but it's still a great text. Yeah. Uh,
0: one of the things that I think is really interesting is that a lot of research has developed over the past century is how there's been these discoveries of some birth charts that survive um, written in Coptic or or, or written in Demotic uh, in Egyptian script that were found close to or in some Egyptian temples that contained birth charts. And it indicates that um, one of the roles of the Egyptian temples, even into the Roman uh, Empire period in Alexandria and other cities, was the Egyptian temple sometimes did divination and that was one of the places where you could go in order to get divination done and learn about your future. And One of the forms of divination that may have been practiced in some of the temples by this time um, from, let's say, the 1st century BCE or the 1st and 2nd centuries CE was they may have been doing casting birth charts and calculating birth charts for people and interpreting birth charts as a method of divination as part of the temple practice.
1: That makes sense to me. I mean, in traditions across the world, temples are a place where you get work done. You know, just like so you go to your garage to get your car worked on, you go to a temple to get your soul worked on. Like you appeal to the gods, you you know, petition the gods for certain things, you offer sacrifices, and you have the priests in residence there do things for you, do ritual work, offer consultations and so forth. So for divination and you know, horoscopes be done wouldn't surprise me at all. So, could
0: you speak to that in terms of divination, what divination is, and what the role of it was, especially in a, let's say an Egyptian context or in a temple context, even aside from the astrology
1: um that I can't really speak that much on unfortunately um if this gets to you know things outside my specific wheelhouse, uh you know the inner workings of Egyptian priestly and temple practices, which can't really say that much on unfortunately but for them to offer spiritual service along these lines, it seems pretty straightforward to me. Because we also know that Egyptian, some Egyptian priests who were well versed in ritual weren't always full time priests. Like they worked at the temple for part of the year, and then for the other part of the year, they'd be just on break, kind of like a teacher in modern day America, um, where you know, where they have summers off. And for the time that a priest was not in residence at a temple, they would still be offering their priestly services as a freelancer, as it were. So like a lot. Number of you know magic practices we can recover from Hellenistic Egypt, you know, like the, the Greek magic papyri, like show so much priestly influence that really, like, it makes sense for priests to be doing this kind of stuff. Like, they don't have to be, and they can certainly teach others as well for their own individual magical practices that they, you know, might invent or adapt from other magicians they might have learned from. But there is definitely a large amount of Egyptian priestly influence, and in especially like the demotic or coptic stuff that yes priests were doing this stuff on their own time and then when they were in the temples they were doing it under more official purview as it were. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And
0: and just in terms of divination, I was thinking about that the other day and why it's important. Like divination, it's it's not as much in our modern society and we only see traces of it. But divination in the Mediterranean in like the first century BCE or first century CE. In the Mediterranean world was a big deal and was much more closely integrated into different societies and was sometimes looked as a much more respectable thing that you do, that you can go to a diviner in order to um, learn about the future or to attempt to ask the divine a question or to clarify something that you need answers to at that time by appealing to some sort of divine um, presence or, or, or technique. And oftentimes, one of the different forms of divination or most of the forms of divination were based on this notion that you could take random or chance events, sort of like the shuffling of a deck of tarot cards, which is random and subject to fortune, and you could shuffle them up and then like pull out a card. And the card that you pull out at that time, even though it's supposed to be random and not purposeful, that built into the concept of randomness is something purposeful and divine and meaningful, and that the nature or the symbolism of that card that you pull out at that time will actually have relevance to your situation and an answer to the question that you seek about your
1: future at that time. Yeah. Like, you know, this notion of sortilage or clearomancy to use more technical terms, you know, it relies on a notion of divine sympathy, of cosmic sympathy, where all things are interconnected and interrelated and interexisting with each other at the same time so by interacting what we would normally consider a chance or a random encounter we allow divine inspiration to occur in a physical medium much like how dream divination was a thing back then and still is only instead of it being a random occur- uh, physical occurrence they allow divine inspiration to come into it's in your dreams you allow a divine inspiration to come into Same idea just played out in a different realm. And, you know, this was definitely done all across the Mediterranean in every culture, in every society, Um, just using a random appearing process to come up with a divine answer. You know, think of the Chinese I Ching. You can think of, you know, the Arabic geomancy, modern tarot, classical Greek knucklebone divination, or, you know, uh, Greek alphabet divination by pulling out a stone from a jar you know, all these things were done across the Mediterranean. In Egypt specifically, I'm not sure what may have been used that wasn't already Hellenic in origin or otherwise more broadly Mediterranean-based. Numerology was certainly a thing. Like I recall from the Green um, Act Papyri, there's a sphere of Democritus, which has also connections to the Circle of Pedasiris in later numerological texts, where like if someone falls sick on this day, you take their name, you reduce it to a number, add it to the day they fell sick, plot it on the circle, and see how they'll turn out. So there's always different kinds of divination forms as well like that.
0: Yeah, and so they're based on this notion. and The Stoics were very open to divination and I think viewed fortune as subservient to fate in some instances where um, fortune or chance-like events, even though they seem random and, and purposeless or meaningless, um, were actually influenced by some sort of d- divine or providential um, set of events, so that whatever the random outcome is that you pull at that time in the divination is actually meaningful and purposeful for you at that time, rather than being just like you know meaningless or
1: or purposeless. Yeah, again, it's, you know, cosmic sympathy. Just how things above related to things below, you know how the positioning of the planets indicates how things happen down here, you know, shuffling of cards can do the same exact thing.
0: Mm. Okay. so that's part of the underlying philosophy underlying divination. that then ties into astrology. And I think to the extent that astrology, while in the Hellenistic period, there started to be driving, especially from Aristotle some more scientific or naturalistic notions of astrology having to do with, Um, planetary influences literally affecting events on Earth in some way. There was also an earlier tendency to treat astrology and and conceptualization of astrology as divination. And I think it had to do with this notion that the moment of birth most of the time is actually a random or chance-like event that we don't usually have control over, especially if let's say for the purpose of argument it's the first century and it's a natural birth. And what you do at the time is that the, the cosmos is constantly, the planets are constantly moving all over the place and the sky is constantly turning and the stars and the planets are rising and culminating and setting. And if you speed it up, it's just moving around constantly and being jumbled around constantly, almost like a deck of cards or like, you know, the lottery nowadays where they put a bunch of little balls in a big ball and shake it up and then you pull something out. Um, I think that's kind of in some of the divination versions or conceptualizations of astrology at this period, how they conceptualized what you're doing even with a birth chart is you're shaking up the cos. The cosmos is being shaken up and then all of a sudden when you pop out of your mother at the moment of birth, that's when you take a snapshot of the cosmos and that random um, alignment of the planet at that moment instead of being random and meaningless actually will tell you about your life and about your future. Um through the providential sort of ordering of of fate and everything else, I really like
1: that approach. That, that's a really cool way of associating the most of the planets as almost chaotic and random to itself, just like shuffling down of cars just on a much slower scale. I like that,
0: yeah, you just have to look at it from a larger cosmic scale or if you take like an astronomy program and instead of and you speed it up so that it's moving really fast, like you start seeing the moon like whipping around the zodiac at you know, uh, one cycle every thirty days, or you see Saturn over the course of centuries. It it speeds through the zodiac, you know, once every thirty years, which from a zoomed out like century version
1: appears very fast. It's like one of those gifs on Twitter where it's like just a click images, like you know, click and stop. To see what your future is gonna be. You click it and it's like going on and on. Stops on like Sonic the Hedgehog, and like that's your future. It's like it's still a you know determined order. Like the planets are going to stay in their orbit, but it's like where exactly you're going to stop it. Yeah. Yeah, Right.
0: Yeah, So they're taking that random or chance-like phenomenon of something that's occurring in nature and that's outside of your control and is somewhat random, but then in taking that snapshot of the moment, they're treating that snapshot and the fact that you were born in that moment and emerged in that moment as meaningful and relevant and telling you something about your future and something deliberate. And, yeah, so and then this gets tied in with broader notions of the macrocosm and the microcosm and cosmic sympathy and things you mentioned earlier. But fundamentally, it has to do with this notion of of divination. Um, yeah, so that's tying all of this thing together, bringing it back into astrology, situating it within the context of the, you know, the philosophical and the technical hermetica. the The last two points that we haven't mentioned that I just wanted to ask you about really quickly is one, why I want you to ask and clarify for our audience, why thrice great? Why is Hermes called Hermes Trismegistus in these texts? And um actually I think that was it. Why, why, why th- oh yeah, why thrice great? And why does some
1: text refer to the way of Hermes and what is the way of Hermes? So for Thrice Great, there's two answers. The more poetical, fanciful, mythic answer is that especially building on later texts like the Emerald Tablet. Hermes is considered to be the foremost in the three holy sciences of astrology, alchemy, and theurgy. Or, alternatively, that he's a leader of kings, priests, and philosophers. That's fancy, and it's kind of like a folk etymology. Like It's not actually historically the reason. The historical reason is, in Egyptian texts, you would find Thoth-O-O-O, all being kind of the my bad you know Egyptological pronunciation of the word for great so literally great 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 thoth but the way you would idiomatically say greatest is you just intensify by duplicating the adjective by saying it
0: three times means he's like really 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 great
1: yeah so basically greatest okay like that that's basically why so in egyptian you have a you know, thoth great 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 which Greek translators would translate literally as Hermes thrice great. So it's at least a literal definition of an epithet of Like That's that's all there really is to it. I do like the more fanciful poetical interpretations, but let's admit that's what those are. Sure. As for Way of Hermes, um, it doesn't exist in the classical Hermetic texts. It's not a phrase you find. You do find the phrase Way of Immortality, in discourse in the eighth and ninth, but it's not clear specifically if that's like a technical term to be used in its own context, or if it was used like more generally to refer to what Hermes was teaching. You generally find the word, the phrase "way of Hermes" in modern texts that kind of look backwards with the benefit of retrospection. You know, because bearing in mind, you know, like with the introduction to Christian bulls text, you know, it talks about a loose association of brotherhoods. I think that. That's even kind of an an exaggeration. Like, it kind of implies that there's this like overall association or overall lodge system, as it were, that kind of brought multiple temples together. And that's not really the thing that
0: happened. We don't really know the extent to which um, there were like Hermetic lodges, sort of like a Masonic lodge today or, or what have you.
1: Like, compare with Mithraism, for instance. Like with Mithraism, we know there were temples, we know there were brotherhoods. We don't know anything about them. We don't know what happened inside them, but we know they existed. Because
0: some of those have actually been like like excavated, and we found R- Roman Mithraic temples or the the um, ruins of them in stone, basically, that have been uncovered in,
1: in different parts of Europe. Exactly. It's like we know for the fact they existed. We have the record of it. We don't know what they believed or what they did. We can guess, but we know they existed. We have like the opposite situation. With Hermeticism, we propose all these lodges or clubs and whatnot, but we have no actual archaeological evidence beyond some oblique references in a couple a handful of texts. So it might even be more loose than just a loose brotherhood. Like I like to think it's like an extracurricular after temple hours club. You know, a priest would lead people who were particularly interested in something for some extra spiritual stuff after the main temple stuff was already concluded. That's how I kind of think of it.
0: And that's led because the other end extend extreme end of the spectrum is that some scholars then have taken as far as to say that Hermetic the Hermetica just represents a purely literary tradition, and
1: that's the other extreme. But that's not you don't go to that extreme either. No, not at all. I mean before the discourse like Ritzenstein, for instance, like he was a major scholar a early modern scholar, you know, 180 if I recall correctly. Like early, early 20th century German scholar on Hermeticism. Yeah. Like okay. he proposed that idea of these being reading mysteries, where you read it and that's how you do the mystery. But as we've discovered like the discourse of the eighth and ninth, as we've gotten more into the Greek magic papyri, we know like no there were actual rituals you would do. We know like these words weren't just meant to be read, but to be pronounced aloud and intoned with you know spiritual exercises of meditation altered states of awareness and so forth it wasn't just reading just reading it's kind of like that pop new age kind of approach to it like you read it and like you just wish real hard and then you're done like that's that's not what these texts are suggesting cuz if it were that easy then there wouldn't be this many texts about it aren't there some references very briefer
0: in passing to either ritual meals to be eaten or like a a ritual
1: like a kiss that's given or something like that Yep, at the the Asclepius, there's this vignette where Hermes gives this whole lecture to his students, Tat, Asclepius, and Ammon in a temple. And then after the discourse concludes, leaves the temple in order to pray. And I think that's actually a really interesting point. You you have the temple religion, which is the exoteric thing that everyone was already doing. And that's where he gives his holy discourse to teach them, but to actually do the work that they need to do as Hermeticists Focused on what they were doing, the temple was an inappropriate place. They had to leave the temple, do something outside under the heavens directly. And that's how they give their famous prayer, Thanksgiving. And that's after that, they have their ritual meal and ritual embrace. Mm, okay. Which is indicative of you know there actually being a community of sorts.
0: Brilliant. Um, well, so that takes me back to then something we just left at the end of the discussion about divination, but will help us wrap this up, which is um, there's a tension with the divination approach. So having established the idea of birth charts as maybe a method of divination, Um, there's a tension then once you set that up between fate and free will, and the question of once you have that information, what do you do with it? Once you've learned your birth chart and learned about yourself or learned about your life and your future, what do you do with it? And different astrologers from the Hellenistic period in the first few centuries CE or the Hellenistic tradition had different answer- answers to that. Some of them had a more stoic approach that seems stoic, that was like you learn about your future, so you learn how you- what you have to accept. Whereas there was others where it was you learn about the future, but then there's things that you can do in order to change or alter or mitigate it, such as different propitiation rituals or-, or things like that. And um this really makes me think you know the answer that that hermeticism and and some of the hermetic stuff has tends to be more practical and people have practical concerns and ha- hermeticism seems like a much more practical philosophy because it doesn't just have the salvific thing of like how to be saved by knowledge and the the philosophical or spiritual concepts but also tied in with hermeticism are these other more practical things of you know doing astrology using electional astrology, which is very more like free will oriented and using it in order to try to mitigate or change the future or alter things or that we have some hermetic texts that talk about um, fixing things through magic or changing things through magic or medical and botanical texts that talk about using herbs or other things in order to change and mitigate things. And it makes me think of just this being a much more practical philosophy that's help, meant to help people with real questions and real problems, and not just to be this abstract thing, but to be something that people are using more in their regular day-to-day life.
1: And it kind of goes back to the discussion we had about Zosimus, you know, or his views on your using magic versus not. It's kind of the same kind of discussion, and I'm thinking of a large number of the like initiatic rituals from the Greek magical papyri. Where like you come call down like this supernatural assistant, this god, your own god, to kind of initiate you into some cosmic mystery, and it's really often thing to request like to wash away the evils of my fate, like literally change my fate, because again it kind of ties into that Egyptian notion of the gods being in control of fate. So if you ask God nice enough or berate them long enough, they'll change fate for you.
0: Yeah, well, and there there isn't in the Greek magical papyri, There's actually a spell that survives where somebody says they're petitioning a, a god or, or using some sort of magic to petition, and they mention their birth chart and their fate, and they ask to be free of it, to be um, broken free of that, or to get away
1: from it somehow. Yeah, I mean, consider given the knowledge of where our souls come from, you know, our souls come from a place beyond the bounds of fate but also our souls have power over fate in its own way if separated from the body long enough to exert that power. And this is totally within our purview because God allowed it to happen. God gave us the power to do this kind of thing. So it may not be possible necessarily to change fate while within it, but if we can ascend beyond it, then we can work for the benefit of a top down perspective. Like, we do see this happening in a large number of Hermetic texts. And the whole point of the Hermetic text is to be free of the bonds of fate. In the end of CH1, it kind of implies you have to do that kind of essential work after death, you know, once you're truly free of your body. But in Discourse 8th and 9th, you know, it happens in the body. You actually do that essential work while alive. So you do it ahead of time to be free of the bonds of fate. You still have to deal with the body. But it's like, Buddha after being enlightened. You know, after enlightenment, Buddha still had to deal with his body. He still had a body. Depending on different sect, tradition, it could be debated how much he suffered headaches or you know, defecation or whatnot, but he still had a body to deal with, even though he was free of it. In many similar ways. Yeah. So there was probably
0: there's a huge range probably then of variability in the Hermetic tradition and text in terms of the degree to which fate is something that is predetermined and unalterable as long as you're in a human body that you're you're in the material world and therefore you're subject to fate and you can't fully change it versus and i wonder also especially if that might have not been a more dominant theme earlier the earlier you go in hermeticism and the closer you get to the heyday of stoicism which is like the 2nd and 3rd centuries bce versus later on one of the interesting things that starts happening is after the first century CE you get the rise of christianity and one of the things we have to understand is christianity was originally a competing religious school or or sect or philosophy and it was competing with stoicism or or sorry with hermeticism so hermeticism and christianity were like you know almost like two businesses that open up in a city and are offering you Different paths or different answers of what to do when you're in the body and you're subject to fate, like different answers. And you know, some of the early Hermetic texts that tended to be more Stoic might be saying, once you learn about your fate, the goal is to accept it, which is what some of the early Stoic astrologers like Valens or Manilius say. But for Christianity, increasingly it offered, and and some of the other sects. It offered the ability to free yourself of fate if you believe in or follow their specific religious methods. And that was one of the things I've come to understand that's been really interesting over the past decade and I've talked about in previous episodes that would have been really appealing about early Christianity that we can't fully understand today is if you live in the ancient world and you're, you grow up believing that everything's predetermined and your birth chart is unalterable, that could be kind of a downer in certain contexts. And if there's a new philosophy on the block or a new religious school that says all you have to do is believe believe in this guy or, you know, experience baptism and be reborn. And then you'll be free of fate and free of your birth chart and it will no longer apply to you, that could be pretty appealing,
1: I think, right? That'd be a complete change in worldview. Yeah. 100 percent And that's that's totally the way to happen. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that's game-changing. And perhaps I could see some of the later hermetic texts also starting to open up to that, and perhaps that's also where we get some of the magical stuff, for example, coming in. Because obviously hermetic magical stuff is not based on a notion that you can't change your fate, but in fact is open to the idea that some things might be changeable or negotiable.
1: But you'll see that really early on, too. like Even from the earlier Greek magical stuff, like Greek magic pyre, so Greco-Egyptian, um, like you, there's still notion of changing fate from a really early point on. So it might be a difference between between Hellenic versus Egyptian view on what's going on. Mm. But like, it's not just saying that you have to change fate, but just change how it manifests. Like, I recall from, I think the Aeneid, um, a beautiful scene involving Venus and, uh, Neptune, where Venus was lamenting the fall of Troy and Neptune is consoling her. And Neptune says, well, I built those walls. And if I had known you cared so much about Troy's well-being, I'd have built them twice as deep and twice as thick so that way Troy could last twice as long. But Troy would still have to have fallen. So like, it kind of raises the question of, what does fate actually specify? Does it specify literally everything from a moment-to-moment basis? Or does it specify the high points of things that have to happen, the key points? And if so how much of a say do we just naturally have in this cosmos to direct things? Like, I have to go to bed tonight at some point, but I can choose what time I go to bed. So long as I get sleep, I'll be fine. You know, I'm not necessarily fated to sleep at 10 p.m. versus midnight. So it kind of raises the question of, you know, what exactly does fate entail? And to what degree can we just change how it manifests versus change what is specified? And I think hereticism and large number of the hermetic magical texts that survive kind of play with that sometimes freely and again, depending on whether it's more Hellenic view or more Egyptian view, how much can be changed? you know do you just change things surtout or do you just work within the divine cosmic hierarchy things, kind of go up one leg and then down another to change how things manifest while still keeping the overall framework the same
0: mm, okay. Yeah, and and then certainly by later we have that famous dialogue between Iamblichus and Porphyry in on the mysteries or on the Egyptian mysteries, where Iamblichus reports that um, there was this belief with some of the astrologers that you could identify the master of the nativity or the overall ruler of the chart, and once identified, it would allow you to identify your guardian spirit or guardian daimon. And then some would then attempt to appeal to the guardian spirit and ask to free them of their fate because the guardian spirit was thought to be sort of the enforcer of a person's fate on the part of the planets in some way that's, that's a little ambiguous. But then they have this whole argument, Iamblichus and Porphyry, about whether that makes sense and whether I think Iamblichus criticizes the idea that you could appeal to the guardian spirit to free you of your fate when it's the job of the guardian spirit to enforce that fate on you in the first place. So he's not gonna free you of it. But it's just at least interesting that for some of the astrologers then, and maybe the more magically or other esoterically inclined ones, that there might have been some notions like that or some practices that did develop perhaps in a Neoplatonic or a Hermetic um sort of approach.
1: Yeah, I mean, both those can totally be justified either way. Like again, Hermeticism. Even the Hermetic texts that survive—they're like—they're not a monolith. Like they emit of many different perspectives, all of which can be considered valid depending on how you argue from them, and some of which you can synthesize into an overall cohesive viewpoint, maybe with some asterisks here and there scattered for you know seasoning. So I mean, either approach totally works. Yeah.
0: Right. All right. Brilliant. Well, um, I think that I think we've exhausted all of the major points that I really wanted to cover during the course of this. Thank you for. Uh, doing this with me and hanging on there and, and what's become a little bit longer of a discussion than we we planned originally, but I think was worth it because we covered a, a surprising amount of stuff. Um, I want to, as we wrap up here, maybe we should mention resources or books that you might recommend. I'll, I'll of course link to your website and your Hermeticism series, which gives a pretty good overview and goes into more detail and also mentions some resources. But if somebody wanted to get started in reading about Hermeticism, um, I guess the Brian Copenhaver translation of the Hermetica is one of the main ones that we'd recommend, right?
1: So there's. I really love Copenhaver. Like 100%. I recommend everyone to get a Copenhaver if they're interested in Hermeticism. However, I also recognize that it's a more critical, exacting translation. So it could be really difficult for people to get into. Um, There's another translation, the Corpus Hermeticum, called Way of Hermes. I know, given the name, it would be confusing with the things we discussed, by Clement Salmon et al. And it's a much more readable, approachable text, but still a very high-quality translation. And it also includes the definitions of Hermes Trimiscus to Asclepius by Jean-Pierre Mahé, that Armenian text I mentioned earlier on. Copenhaver includes Corpus Medicum and the Latin Asclepius. So it's they both share one text, they both have another text added on.
0: Yeah, and the Way of Hermes One is also cheaper, which is one of the yes. reasons I, I remember reading at first because the Copenhaver One is a big thick academic book that m- used to be much more expensive, especially before there was a paperback version.
1: Yeah. And there's also hermetica so there's Brian Copenhaver's Hermetica, and there's M. David Litva's Hermetica Two, um, which is also from Cambridge Publishers. And which just came out a few years ago. Oh, it's such a good text. And that has it's like so all good. the other Hermetic texts that aren't Corpus Hermeticum, Asclepius, or definitions, as like everything else.
0: Yeah, that we're missing. There, there was just tons of stuff that was stuck in Greek or that was hard to access from much older and less good translations from like a century ago until this book came out a few years ago. And it basically translates the rest of all the Hermetic fragments and stuff that survive that are not contained in Copenhaver's translation. Yes.
1: The only downside is that it's an academic book. And therefore, it has academic book pricings. Like, that's the only downside. Yeah, right. Um, let's see. Beyond Clement Salmon and beyond Copenhagen, beyond Litva, um, the non-Kamadi scriptures. Like, there's different translations out, um, but it does have good information about the Hermetic texts in there. Um, for secondary uh, researchers and scholars, Christian Bull, Garth Fowden, we've already mentioned them. Um, Wouter uh a Dutch academic, I believe, who's written plenty about Hermeticism and Western esotericism in general. Um, plenty of his papers are online, like on his academia.edu page. He's written great texts and great articles about different aspects of Hermeticism as well. Um, Gosh, drawing a blank. I, I know I've listed a whole bunch of people in like all well, my FAQ posts uh, for different scholarly researchers, but yeah, those are some of the big names to be aware of, some being keyword. I liked for the contrast a little bit with
0: Gnosticism, Nicola Denzi Lewis's book, Introduction to Gnosticism, Ancient Voice Voices, Christian Worlds. Um, that's That can go into some of the Gnostic stuff that has, like we said, is almost like a parallel or sister thing to Hermeticism. But she also has a little bit of a treatment of hermeticism that helps to contrast it, hermeticism with Gnosticism, which is kind of interesting and useful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like learning about Gnosticism really helps out hermeticism because there is more material in Gnosticism out there. Especially so comes like ritual texts; they tend to be a lot more. Uh, I don't want to say extreme or weird, but there's a lot more of a heavy Christian or Jewish element of them at times that doesn't always mesh well with hermeticism. You might consider hermeticism to be like pagan Gnosticism in a way but it does help fill in some of the background information that gives Hermeticism a little more richness and depth. Okay. Um, and in terms of astrological
0: comparisons of Hermeticism, unfortunately, there's not a lot. I mean, um, I think Joanna Kamarowska, this book is hard to find these days because I think it's out of print, but uh, it's titled Vadius Valens of Antioch An Intellectual Monography, and she does a pretty good job of comparing some of the philosophy threads in Valens's text and some of the sparse philosophical passages where he does outline his philosophy, and she compares it to some Hermetic texts as well as some Stoic text and some Middle Platonic texts and identifies where some of the influences are coming from. So for a really detailed, again, much more academic, like hardcore academic treatment, you can look to that. Um, and I'm trying to think there's Marilyn Lawrence has Um, an entry on Hellenistic astrology in the internet encyclopedia of philosophy. And if you do a Google search for that, you'll see a very long article and she has a section on uh, Hellenistic astrology and Hermeticism as well as Gnosticism that are interesting and can lead to some other sources. Okay,
1: noted. I I unfortunately don't have a lot of sources along those lines. I might (laughs) just stick to your book and like rob hand. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I should I guess I should mention that and then of course my book Hellenistic Astrology: The Study of Fate and Fortune where I primarily focus on the techniques of Greco-Roman astrology from the first few centuries and outlining that system and but I also have a chapter dealing with the history and some of the hermetic texts that we know of like the Hermes and Asclepius and the Trapezmpedisterus and text as well as a somewhat concise chapter on the philosophy of Hellenistic astrology and some of the issues with determinism versus the mechanism through which astrology works, through divination or through causes, um, so people can go to that for more information about that topic. Um, and I think I think that wraps up this super comprehensive, sweeping, what's turned into three-hour discussion between us. Thank you so much for doing this with me. This is amazing. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. This has been a great talk. It's great talking with you too.
0: Yeah, this is only our second time like talking over. Skype or over the phone over Zoom like this, but um, we didn't. While well, we had some like notes sort of written down very chaotically, this was not a very pre-planned discussion. But I think we, interestingly, through dialogue format, not unlike the the hermetic texts themselves, <laughs> were able to explore and find our way through this and and sort of discover some things that have been really gratifying and fulfilling to me because I've been wanting to do this episode for like over ten years now, and I and I think this. We hit the mark in terms of what I could have hoped for in terms of doing this
1: discussion. So thank you. Of course. And I may recommend there's one closing thing I like to point out. If you still have your um, ebook version, uh, The Corpus Hermeticum is still up. Book three, I think, is really cool. Um, I've still saw my blog before, but book three, I think, is like the heart sutra of Hermeticism, as it were. It's a really short book. It's like a page long, if that. And it really talks about at a high level um, kind of what all the stuff that corpus hermeticum book 1 talks about mm-hmm. but it's even more condensed and section 3 talks about specifically the creation of humanity and what we're here to do i think it really kind of highlights an important astrological point i really want to bring up you know so you know the gods you know through their own power each god sent forth what was assigned to them and the beast came to be you know, four footed, crawling, water dwelling, and winged, and every germinating sea and grass and every flowering plant, and within the ball they had the seed of rebirth. And the gods sowed generations of humans to know the works of God, to be a working witness to nature, to increase the number of mankind, to master all things under heaven, to discern the things that are good, to increase by increasing and multiply multiplying. multiplying. And through the wonder-working course of the cycling gods, they created every soul incarnate to contemplate heaven, the course of the heavenly gods, the works of God, and the workings of nature, to examine the things that are good, to know divine power, to know the whirling changes of fair and foul, and to discover every means of working skillfully with things that are good. Like this one passage, this one short little passage kind of encapsulates all the creation of life down here. Like emphasizes the astrological components of Hermeticism. Like it's very much the plants that made us incarnate and it's the plants that we need to inspect, to meditate, to observe, to mark and through them come to know not just how everything comes to be, but how things come to be. And by knowing that, what we get to do down here to fulfill our own purposes and the purposes of God. Like this passage, I think is beautiful for that. And look at, you might want to read four or two, or just the the first sentence of it. And for them, this is the beginning of virtuous life and of wise thinking as far as the course the cycling gods destines it, and also the beginning of their release to what will remain of them after they have left great monuments on earth and works of industry. In the fame of seasons, they will become dim, and from every birth and sold flesh, from the sowing of crops, from every work of industry, what is diminished will be renewed by necessity and by the renewal that comes from the gods and by the course of nature's measured cycle. For the divine is the entire combination of cosmic influence renewed by nature, and nature has been established in the divine. Wow. It's a yeah. beautiful text. Like, it's it's a dense text, but I think like everyone like wants to focus on the Emerald or oh, Emerald Tablet. Oh, Emerald Tablet. Yes, Emerald Tablet. We get it. It's it's fancy, it's cryptic. But which we didn't like, mention, by the way. And that's fine. It does we never okay. do. <laughs> um it's more of an alchemical m- cryptic You know, puzzled anything else? It's it's very short, but that's where the
0: the famous dictum "As above, so below" comes from.
1: Yeah, which you don't actually see in any classical Hermetic text. Um, You find things that are similar to it, and you can kind of read that between the lines. But that's really of an Emerald Tablet thing. Mm. But Book Three of the Corpus Hermeticum, like that's the whole synthesis of Hermeticism right there in those Mm. four little paragraphs. Like that's the whole synthesis and note how it emphasizes the astrological part of it all the study of astrology is said right there to be part of our own purposes
0: right and the and the contemplation of the cosmos and the the sort of inherent beauty because the word cosmos in greek has that
1: notion of it being like a, an order a beautifully ordered thing yeah like how you would like a hairdresser arranging plates in someone's hair like that's a cosmos Hmm.
0: Right, and the the Emerald Tablet, the "as above, so below" thing. Even though that phrase is never used earlier, there's still um, it's not entirely unfamiliar in terms of notions of like the microcosm and the macrocosm or cosmic sympathy that certainly were prevalent and very at home in in hermeticism and stoicism in the early centuries CE. Hmm.
1: I mean, as above, so below. Like that's definitely there. As below, so above. Not so much. You do see this doctrinal notion of things below, things down here on Earth, depending on things from above. Because things that are above are prior to things that are below. Things that are above give influence to things that are below. But it doesn't really work the other way around. We can use things below to understand things that are above. That's true. Like you can use alchemy to understand how fire influences certain things as an element and knowing that fire comes from the planets of the sun and Mars. We understand how the sun and Mars come to work, but doing alchemical works down here don't change the nature of the sun and Mars up there.
0: Hmm. Sure. All right. Brilliant. Well, thank you for clarifying that. That has then touched on the final thing that <laughs> you know to mention in terms of our comprehensive treatment of um, hermeticism and all of this. I think some one of these days you might consider like writing a little book or something and taking all your blog posts and putting them together. I'm sorry to heap that burden on you, but I'm just going to put that out there as a suggestion. If anyone would like to see that, then please let us know in the comments section below on YouTube, and and perhaps we can like uh, social pressure you into into writing a, a monumental work to bring some of this knowledge, but also your expert distillation of it together, which is one thing. It's only reading your blog post is going to be a different experience. Your series on system is going to be a different experience for somebody that's new to it, where it's very good and straightforward. But what's wild for me, having read a lot of the scholarship that you've read and a lot of the books on hermeticism and all that, is what a good job you're doing. You do simplifying things and putting it in a a concise, readable format that's also very sensible and like middle of the ground and acknowledging different perspectives, but also presenting things relatively neutrally and sensibly. And and it's one thing that. I appreciate that even if other people can't fully recognize, like they should understand you're doing some some really good stuff with it. So I hope you keep it up.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the high race.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. All right. And thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the podcast. And that's it. So we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers' tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopik, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero, If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And In exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com/astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you'd like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology: The Study of Fate and Fortune where I traced the origins of western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2000 years ago and in this book I outline uh, basic concepts but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart including some timing techniques so you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com/book the book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course which has over 100 hours of video lectures, where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and the AstroGold Astrology app, which is available for both iPhone and Android at astrogold.io. There are also two major astrology conferences happening this year. The first is the Northwest Astrological Conference, happening May 26th through the 30th, 2022 near Seattle, Washington. Find out more information at norwac.net. And the second is the International Society for Astrological Research Conference, which is taking place August 25th through the 29th, 2022, in Westminster, Colorado. And you can find out more information about that at isar2022.org.